Okay, then. so uh, today we are going to welcome uh, Nick Tooley from uh, Delilah Fine Foods uh, to talk about fine foods and real food and what they the do. difference is between real food and, and you know the stuff that most people unfortunately eat most of the time. Yep. Um, so obviously the, the theme of our podcast uh, of Thrive and Perform is, is trying to help people live their life better, more healthily and, and perform at a, at a higher level. Um, uh, and obviously food is a big part of that. Um, and part of our uh, our core philosophy is not just we don't look just look at food in terms of like macronutrients and grams of protein and all this sort of stuff. But I'm a firm believer that uh, food quality is is of the utmost importance. Um, and uh, I'll I'll give you like a little um, uh, a sort of anecdote of of, of what I'd like to talk about today. Yeah. Um, my dad, who who's who's 72 years old, um, I'm always trying to get him to eat eat more healthily. Um, and his argument to me uh, one day was that um, back when he was a kid, you know, he would have bacon, sausage, eggs, you know, mm. full fried breakfast every single day. And everybody did that and everything was, was fine. OK. And I had to point out to him that, well, that was a very, very different breakfast mm. back in, in, in those times Hell than yeah. what it is today. Definitely. Because, you know, the, the, the pork was locally reared well reared yeah. uh, uh, pork as was the bacon it was from a you know a pig that was from the butchers that was from the farm that was in the same the same village yeah the eggs were you know maybe they were even from your back garden or they were yeah. from you know the woman down the road uh, again everything was uh, eating a natural diet for that animal it was locally reared it was fresh even the lard that you that he yeah, uh, yeah. that he's proud that he cooked everything in was yeah. from the same locally reared outdoor reared well fed pig yeah. um, you know the the toast was made by bread that was from the local windmill with local flour and it was and it was properly made yeah and looking at the difference between that meal and the equivalent meal just bought from a local supermarket today nutritionally is kind of through the roof and nobody knows more about proper food uh i don't know anybody that knows as much about proper food as what you do so i'm really excited to just get into it and and let you uh let you rant about the difference between real food and and fake food well it's great i mean it's you what you've just said is absolutely right and i used to have this conversation with my my both my grandfathers lived into their mid 90s um and they could never understand diets you talk to them a lot about all these kind of diets and i can't even remember the one that was around last time i spoke to them about these kind of things but but they said the same they used to eat things like black pudding and, and all these yeah. kind of things and used to eat drip bread and dripping was yeah. you know something and you think well they lived and you know into their 90s self-sufficient still living at home but it's what you've just said that's absolutely right it's that if you're buying uh you know those kind of products now from the supermarket it's the amount of additives that are in there it's the quality of the base product to start with take pork for example as you've just said the quality of the base product before you do anything else, mm. um, you know, was just better. Yeah. Um, and it was much better for you. Things, you know, most of them would have been what we would now class fashionably as things like pasture fed and grass yeah. reared and all yeah. these kind of things. It's just normal. Which was just normality. There yeah. was no such thing as, as that being a great thing. Yeah. There wasn't really an alternative. That yeah. was the problem. Yeah. Um, mass production and intensive rearing and all these kind of things are something that we've created. Certainly kind of post-war in this in this country so and I, and I say that from a point of view of being actually quite recent mm. um where we've decided that actually you know we can't wait 48 hours for a, for a loaf of bread to ferment for the yeah. leaven to uh, to to uh, to prove to then bake the bread uh, we've got to have it ready in about 20 minutes so you know we've got to intensively rear animals we've got to intensively farm products 
um, to, to meet all those needs of our kind of modern lifestyle. Mm. Um, and we are meeting those, which is, which is, I nearly said great, but it's, it's not, it's, it's actually the problem. Yeah. Because to meet those needs, we have to go, right, what corner can we cook? There's so a lot there's, of hidden costs, yeah. yeah. So if there's 20 steps in making a product, we've got to get right. If we get rid of 10 of those steps, then we've got that product faster. Mm. The problem is a lot of those steps were time or, again, in the, you know, talking about bread, you know, the fermentation process and that, the approving process, mm. um, which leavened bread has been around for thousands and thousands of years. It's only recently that we've gone, no, I can't wait that long for a loaf of bread yeah. and I only want to spend 20p on it. So, yeah. you know, we've had to intensively farm types of corn and wheat so that it, but the, the problem with that is all the gluten inside it um, and there's no proving or fermentation process so the gluten doesn't get broken down. What we end up with is, yeah, you get a 20p loaf of bread, but then you get a country where there's so many people that are now having gluten intolerance. Mm. Um, and it's because of we've created that from mm. food mm. Um, and through our modern lifestyles and wanting to, to, to speed up processes. And the problem with speeding up most processes, same as with you, coming down the gym and, and training hard, well, if you want to do it right, you can't speed it up. Yeah. You get If you want the, the correct outcome at the end, you've got to do it properly yeah. and not cut corners. And then you'll achieve your goal. But you won't achieve it in 20 minutes. It takes a bit of time and work and discipline. Products are no different. So, so let's talk about some specific examples. So you bring up bread, and this is a fantastic one. I, I recommend to a lot of our clients that they come up to your place and they, and they get the Welbeck sourdough bread. Proper artisan-made sourdough bread. And this is immensely important. There's a whole article on our website about why this is different from normal bread. Mm. But some of the feedback that I sometimes get from clients is like, I'm going to go and buy, spend four pounds on a loaf of bread that's got holes in it when I can go and buy a pound of bread, you know, from, yeah, from yeah. the supermarket. Yeah. Um, and, you know, it's, it, it's, it, it maybe some people think, I don't, but some people think it's nicer when it's all that yeah. fluffy white, like, you know, commercial yeah, yeah. process stuff. So let's get into that. That's because it's bleached. Yeah. So what is different between <laughs> yeah. I, I come to you and I buy a, a loaf of properly made artisan yeah. sourdough bread versus I go to the supermarket and mm. I just get, I'm not going to name a big brand, but, you know, just big brand, loaf of yeah. bread, white bread. Oh, you can bash any supermarkets for me. I do it all the time in my talks. So. Um, but the, 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 the biggest difference is that if you're a huge mass producer of bread, um, the reason you're able to make it cheaper is because of the production time and production costs. So if you've got a huge factory that can pump out, you know, a thousand loaves of bread every five minutes, well, okay, you've made a cheap product. That's great. That doesn't mean it's good for you. That means it's cheap and it's quick. Mm. The cheap and quick when it comes to food rarely equals quality, health, nutritional content mm. uh, in any way. Mm. Um, they, those two things are rarely, uh, uh, rarely paired up. Something like sourdough is more expensive um, because most places that make it, uh, the fermentation process is 48 hour. Uh, so once that... Uh, is made from leaven, which is uh, which is a, a natural. Um, you take something like Activia yogurts or something. Not wanting to use the, you know brand names, but other yogurts are available. <laughs> um, but you know the what's in there is basically the same thing that's in a leaven. Yeah, uh, leaven is basically if anyone's ever tried to make sourdough at home, you get some flour, put some water with it, leave it in a nice dark, cool uh, place, not yeah. too hot, not too cold, and what you'll start to get is that will become. Uh, it'll start to grow and start to be yeah. alive. Yeah. Um, natural yeast was in the, within the air. Uh, we'll start the process of um, those little, uh, you know, uh, bacteria all growing and, and being quite happy. Now they're really good, friendly uh, bacteria. Yeah. 
what happens is rather than adding yeast to, to the bread making process, you use the leaven because that's a natural proven or natural uh, yeast element of the bread. The problem is for that to prove because it's natural, it takes time. Mm. So the person that makes that, once it's, uh, once it's uh, uh, and most of these places are making this by hand because you can't make sourdough bread mechanically very well or very uh, with a great deal of ease because it beats it up too much. But that takes 48 hours. So the reason it's more expensive is because of how long it takes. Mm. They will not be able to sell that loaf they've just made for two and a half days mm. because of the proving process, how long the fermentation takes, etc., etc. Mm. But what you do get is something that tastes great, yeah. um, will keep. Yeah. Good sourdough yeah. bread, the, the, the best way to know if you've got good bread or not is leave it for a little bit. If it goes mouldy, your bread's crap. Yeah. If it goes stale, yeah. that was good bread. Yeah. That's one of the easiest yeah. ways of knowing. Uh, you know, so why does that happen? Why does the bad bread go mouldy? It's just the moisture content inside yeah. it, etc. It's not. It's just everything inside it is not natural. Yeah. Um, and so it will go off rather than just go stale. Yeah. Sourdough will just lose what moisture it's got, and it will go stale. And you can still use that. And that behaviour with the with the moisture. Correct me if I'm wrong. But that's actually down to sugar that they add to the yeah. bread, right? Because sugar uh, absorbs water. Absolutely. So it, so it holds more water, holds yeah. more moisture, and that'll, that means that the, the environment for, mm. for mould to grow is, yeah. is kind of perfect mm. versus um, when, when you're using uh, like a, a sourdough bread that hasn't got yeah. any of that sugar in it, it dries out, yeah. and it's impossible for any mould to, to grow Absolutely. on it, right? So the, the amount of... The, if you taste a, 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 a you know a lovely slice of your your white mass produced loaf against a sourdough, it will just it will physically taste sweeter, yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, and that is exactly what it is. It's just sugar. Yeah. Um, it's and good sourdough also because of that. The best thing about it is the proving process that takes that forty eight hour time breaks down all of the um, uh, the, the gluten inside it. Yeah. The problem to make something that's very robust, you can bake it quickly and, and you can get it out the bakery door and or the the factory door yeah. as quickly as possible, is that everything has to be robust. So the the, the wheat or the corn and or whatever's used in the, in the bread has to be uh, incredibly strong. So you're talking like double zero flours that uh, you would use to make pastas and that kind of thing. Really incredibly strong flours, incredibly strong yeast that will work at mega speeds. The problem is our bodies are not really designed yeah. to digest any of that. Um, gluten itself can be digested, but the good thing about leaven breads, which is how it's been, as I say, made for thousands of years, is that it will break, uh, the process it goes through breaks down the gluten before you even consume it. Yeah, there was, I remember reading one study um, that actually quantified that down to 12 parts per billion um, uh, of gluten, which less than 20 is legally gluten-free. Wow. Um, but they don't call it gluten-free because it's, it's made with gluten-containing ingredients. Yeah. Uh, and obviously they'd have to specifically batch test each mm. bas- batch to, to see what there was. Mm. But this is why a lot of people find that uh, you know they don't do well on, on commercial bread, mm. but then they go to Europe, they go to the continent, and, yeah. and they eat the, the, the kind of better stuff. Yeah. And they find there's absolutely fine with them in their, mm. in their system, and they don't have any problems with yeah. it. Most of mainland Europe is, is a lot better with with food because of history and culture uh, than, than we are in this country. We're going in the right direction, don't get me wrong, I'm not a naysayer, but we you look at, you know, to go to, uh, you know, most of mainland Europe, Italy, France, Spain, for example, uh, and try and find a, a cheap, uh, what we would kind of, kind of cheap and nasty white sliced loaf in their soup, even in their supermarkets, 
it's not as easy to find as, mm. it, as it is mm. here. They just understand that kind of thing a little bit better. Mm. Um, and there is, like I say, it's just more about tradition and history that they have, eating as families, cooking as families, processes and, and cooking and all these kind of things uh, from through history and tradition. They're just, you know, they've got a bit more of that than, than, than we have. Because um, of... Uh, I suppose with us, we've kind of t- tried to. We talk about this before, um, you know, as a because of kind of post-colonial uh, uh, Britain, we've got such a uh, a mix of people yeah. and cultures and food within the country. Mm. Now that's great, um, and you know, I, I, it's, there's so many great things you can find even in this city uh, from all over the world, and that is genuinely fantastic. But what we don't have is a, as a set country is a, a deep history of our own kind of food really that a lot of countries yeah. benefit from um, so we have access to lots of different things but it's very very much it's kind of that western style of learning we want to have little bits of everything mm. eastern style of learning or a lot of other places uh, a lot of other countries they want to know one thing and they learn that their entire lives so depth of knowledge not breadth of knowledge mm. and I think that's you know certainly from bread making point of view there are places as you say people go to the continent and go yeah. oh that's fine with, yeah. with all of that food or that bread it's not not coincidence so what what do we do really really well in the UK in terms of real food mm. what, do, what do we produce because I mean you know you come to Delilah mm. um, and there's, there's all manner of, of, of fine foods that's, mm. that's what you do um, and, and they're from all over the world right? yeah. you've got loads of stuff from Europe you've got loads of continental kind of mm. bits um, but what, uh, what, do, what do we produce in this country that's just exceptional Lots of things, which is which is which is great. But for me, some of the most impressive stuff that we have is uh, is livestock. Yeah. Um, for me, we have not only some of the best quality uh, livestock uh, you can get in the world, and I mean in the world, but our methods of uh, of welfare uh, mm. and dispatch processes, all the way through to it being, mm. you know, from that animal being, uh, you know, born uh, through to it being, you know, consumed. Um, we have some of the highest quality and highest welfare and highest controlled um, processes anywhere in the world. Um, so how and we can be very proud of certainly the, the, the livestock and, and, and meat industry in this country. We should be way more proud of it than we are. Yeah. And, and so how easy is it to get a hold of this and what is the, the difference? So let's say, for example, with beef. Um, there's a farm shop that I like to go to in Nottingham where in the car park sometimes the, the, the cows are literally have their head over the fence and kind of half in the car park <laughs> they're eating the grass that yeah. you can see right there they're in the fields and they are um, you know reared right there and sold right there yeah. and the quality is exceptional mm. you pay for it but yeah. the quality is exceptional mm. how, how, how much of a difference is that from the worst, say, beef that you can get yeah. in in this country. So, each animal has obviously different standards. Yeah, but, certainly. But what's the what's the what's the really big difference there? Everything from anything from any, like take chicken right up to something like cattle. Um, there's there's not only the benefit. I always I always say to people if if you could produce the same piece of meat mm. that tasted exactly the same, and it was the same cost. But you knew that that animal was high welfare, free range, pasture reared, whatever you know, process. But incredibly well, that was a, a let's say a happy animal. Mm. But the other one was one that was intensively reared and mm. you know, a, a barn reared or you know, one of the processes that that is used in a lot in this country that we you know we class as not very good. Um, if you had those two things in front of you, who chooses the second one? Mm. No, I don't think anybody would. 
and that's the important thing so by definition we do as human beings we, we have empathy for animals um, to a certain degree we, we, we want there to be some welfare so that's the first thing the second thing is that there is very much a nutritional benefit to all of that those animals being happy all the way through to, to dispatch dispatch being dealt with properly if an animal is, uh, is, is um, scared or has uh, high anxiety at the point of, uh, of dispatch that creates uh, a lot of um, chemicals being released into the body, same as we do, adrenaline if we get scared, etc. The problem with that is that that creates uh, and stops very simple processes like rigor mortis within the, within the carcass and creates very bad quality product. So even through into the process of, uh, of dispatch, everything should be done very well with the yeah. maximum respect for the animal, not just because well, we should do that anyway, that's just the way it should yeah, be. Ethical, but it has a knock-on effect to the quality of the product at the, mm. at the end. And certainly from a welfare point of view, take something like beef. Again, uh, you know, the pasture-reared beef has a lot better flavour than something that's more intensively farmed. Yeah. And that's actually nutritionally backed up. You know, uh, there's a lot less calories inside pasture-reared uh, beef. That's because there's less of the bad fats, more of your good fats. So higher levels of things like omega-3 less of things like saturated fats etc inside uh, inside that because of the the lifestyle the animal has led because of the feed it's been eating it's it's a happy animal mm. uh, you know and that creates the reality of that going through not only as we're saying is ethical and and i wouldn't buy anything that uh, that is not that kind of level me personally um but the argument there is then is the cost, uh, as you mentioned, yeah. chicken being one of the biggest ones. Free I mean, range. Yeah, chicken's probably the Free worst thing chicken you can is eat very, very expensive. In this country, yeah. Yeah, I mean, barn red or, or intensively red chicken, which yeah. is what the most, more than 90% of what you get in the supermarkets in this country. Yeah. Is, but even free range, only, it, it's not necessarily that much of a good thing, right? There's, there's well, there's, there's certain grades of it and, and lots of different things. They all, even, you know, you want to take it right up to things like fair trade, but, you know, they, they all have the right morals and ethics behind them, but the quality of that, it's worth just doing a little bit of research yourself on, you know, uh, on what free range means to the people that, that you're buying your, your yeah. meat from. And I would always say, as we started this conversation about, you know, our grandparents yeah. knew where that meat came from because yeah. it was probably the neighbours or it was Mr Smith down the road who had the butchers and, yeah. and they all knew each other. That's where they came from. Yeah. There's no reason why we can't do that now. Mm. You've got fantastic farms around here with butchers attached, people like Harkers, um, yeah. uh, Clips from the Wolds, um, uh, Blackberry Farm, uh, a lot of their own animals. Super high welfare, mm. incredibly good uh, dispatch processes, but then the butchery also very talented people. Mm. And I know where they're from, and I've seen those animals. I know who looks after them. And that, for me, there's, there's that element of, of knowing and trusting Okay, you know, they're being organically certified, for example, is incredibly expensive and takes a very long time to achieve that certification. So a lot of people won't do it simply out of cost and, yeah. and a commercial decision. Yeah. Doesn't mean they wouldn't achieve it if they went for it. Yeah. But just knowing where it's from uh, and having that trust. But there is, again, the nutritional benefit of that um, within, 
again, same with chicken. Um, you know, free-range chicken has a, a, a huge amount of vitamin A, vitamin E, omega-3s that you'll never get from something that's intensively reared yeah. because that's going to be full of uh, antibiotics, it's going to be full of potentially steroids, um, and a lot of that will be um, pork-related that and, they're filled and, with. And like so, I say, as well, you know, the, we're talking here about how the quality of food that we eat mm. determines, to, to some extent, uh, the, the, the quality uh, that our... Uh, that our actual cells are right. Like yeah. every cell in your body is made from something that you at one point ate. Yep. So um, you know that's no different to the chicken that you're eating. Mm. Every cell in that chicken's body was was made yeah. from something that it at one point ate. And if the quality of feed that that animal was having mm. uh, was very very poor, mm. its nutrient status will be very very poor, and its value to you will be less. Yeah. Right. And and uh, and if an animal's lived for forty to forty two days, like a an intensively reared chicken has. Mm. You've got to think to yourself, what have they had to feed that to get that from a, yeah. a hatched chicken yeah. to one that's ready for, yeah. for, for going you know, to, to the shelves mm. in 40 days? Mm. They're not feeding that on healthy food for yeah. it to grow that quickly. Yeah. Um, it has to get there through other means, and that's why it doesn't have anywhere near the nutritional uh, you know, mm. uh, content of something that's re-ranked. Absolutely. And the... Um, the the actual potential negative effects it's not just the the, the potential effect of um, uh, of having lower nutrients in your in your diet but the, there might actually be a negative health impact from from eating that kind of food on a regular basis like you say you're getting you're getting second hand uh, hormones mm-hmm. you're getting a second hand probio- uh, probiotics uh, uh, antibiotics yeah um, and uh, and and also you know one of the ways in which that that meat that you know the principally the reason that people will buy that meat is because it's cheaper Right, yes. like no one's gonna think that that tastes better. Mm. Everyone would would prefer mm. to spend the money on on a properly reared, organic, free range, like you know, ticking every box chicken because mm. it simply tastes better, yep. right? Um, but uh, so cost being the, the the primary driver. But as I understand it, the cost of that food is artificially low because there are costs that the environment is paying the price mm. of that cost the local yeah. community where that intensive chicken farm might be mm. is paying the cost because things like cleanup isn't done correctly things like waste runoff and disposal is polluting local yeah. streams even the carbon footprint of mm. rearing animals in the wrong way is is, yeah. is 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 astronomical it's much higher than doing it the right way yeah, yeah. Uh, or what i would uh, certainly uh, say is the right way yeah most definitely it's not always the case i think that the, the, the problem with the cost element is that it is unfortunately real. Uh, you know, mm. I'm sure there'll be, uh, there's lots of people that might listen or, or I talk to that do go, well, I can't afford to spend £10 on a roast chicken when I can swim next to it, there's £3. Mm. And there's a, real, there's a real aspect to that, and, yeah. I, and, I, and I totally appreciate it. Yeah. But that kind of level of, of, of what supermar- supermarkets only sell what we buy. True. Otherwise, they would not exist. Yeah. Tesco is not stupid, as much as I like to think they are. They're not. They're very clever mm. at what they do. They will sell what we buy. Mm. We have to kind of, as consumers, we have to kind of be slightly led by as as buying the right things or, or things that are better. Let's just say better for us, because that makes way more sense. If we lead ourselves towards buying things that are better for us, mm. the supermarkets will start selling more of it. Mm. Mm. Therefore, you start creating competition. There'll be more companies supplying it. Um, the processes around rearing it and producing it become slightly cheaper. Mm. Excuse me. So the price comes down. Um, same as with any product, same as any commodity, any commercial kind of you know uh, economic process. Um, at the moment, you know things like 
free range chicken we can all see it when we go into the supermarket it's a tiny element of that whole chicken section yeah that's based on how much is bought and, yeah. and purchased um i'm hoping that more the more that people learn about it mm. people that uh, potentially can afford it or or, 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 or want to uh, mm. or able to will make that decision based on oh wow i didn't maybe i didn't have that little bit of information uh, or I've, I've learned something or something like that uh, because the more people start buying that all those processes kick in and mm. it's more widely available and it becomes a little cheaper. I, th- I think as well though, you know, what I would always counsel a client to do is um, eat less of much higher quality mm. meat. Like for me, um, th- we have an ethical responsibility, all of us do, right? And, um, you know, I, I, I love beef. I love venison. I love lamb. Um, and I want to be able to eat these foods indefinitely. Mm. Um, but I don't want to support methods of farming that are horrendous for the environment, mm-hmm. horrendous for our climate, yeah. horrendous for the animals themselves, Absolutely. Uh, just so that I can save a little bit of money on it. And so what I do um, in order to afford myself that high quality of meat is two things. Number one, um, only eat as much as I can afford. Yeah. I, won't, I won't eat more meat by buying lower quality meat. Mm-hmm. Like I don't think that that's a good... I think that's a bit of a false economy, both yeah. for my health and for, for the planet. So mm-hmm. I'll try to stay away from that. And the other thing is just to eat cheaper cuts. Yes. You know, so so at the farm shop that I, I mentioned earlier on, um, fillet steak from that farm shop, and I, I never understood why fillet steak is the most expensive. <laughs> it's not the best. It's not the nicest. Yeah. It's the leanest. Mm. I, I get that. But the fat's not bad for you. So yeah. I don't understand it. But anyway, that's a, that's a side note. But their fillet steak's like 75 pounds a kilo, mm. right? So we, we, we bought a, a fillet from there um, one Christmas as like a special treat to make a, a beef wellington. Yeah. You know, and it was the most expensive meal I've ever, <laughs> I've ever had in my life. Yeah. It was insane. Um, but then from the exact same animal, yeah. right, from the same level of, uh, of nutrients, mm. you can buy fantastic cuts like yeah. shin of beef or, or oxtail or, um, uh, you know, uh, short ribs mm. and things like that, which, which are ludicrously tasty. Mm. It's so good. The fat in those, in those things, like you say, the quality fat, yeah. the fat's got tons of nutrients in it mm. um, because animals will store certain nutrients mm. in their fat. You, the, the fat's kind of yellow. Yeah. It's not white. It's, it, it, it's of a good color. And if you just patiently learn how mm. to cook it, there's so much more flavor and satisfaction. Yeah. You, you, you eat that and you think like, God, I've had a meal um, as opposed to having the, the more expensive cuts and, mm. And that's something I would always encourage people to do is, is just the the amount of your meat intake should be limited by your budget. Obviously, that's yeah. that's that's just you know personal finance. Mm-hmm. You, you can't. You, no one's suggesting that you take out a credit card in order to afford something. to buy beef. Yeah. Um. But you sh- you should only buy what you can afford yeah. to eat, first class. Definitely. Really, when it comes to meat. Yeah. There's there's so many. You you're absolutely right with the cuts. I mean. You know, our, our mutual friend, Dr. Sally Bell, uh, we did an event with her a few weeks ago mm. and she wanted a beef dish on, on the menu. And I specifically chose a cut that people probably would never have heard of. And what if we go, it? it was omelette, uh, which is oh, yeah, okay. omelette, which is in, in sort of old school English butchery is called hanger steak. It's the muscle that moves the diaphragm. Yeah. Now it's full of intramuscular fat. So marbling, basically. Yeah, which, um, is yeah, which is all good fat. If you went into your butchers and asked for that, mm. one, you're going to get a blank face of, are you sure? Because mm. they wouldn't have sold any of that for a, a weeks. Yeah. Um, and it's probably what ends up going into their burgers and that yeah. kind of thing. Not because of, there's anything wrong with it. It certainly isn't awful or anything like that. It is prime meat, but it's because people don't know about it. Yeah. Bavette is mind. another one, which is skirt steak. Yeah. 
Yeah. Um, you know, from what would be kind of like ab, abs, you know, on the on the animal. Yeah. Um, again, huge amounts of intramuscular fat. Yeah. Um, and huge amounts of flavour because fat is is the flavour. And, and and cost per kilo. If you, if you pay anywhere near nine quid, mm. you need to be questioning your budget. <laughs> <laughs> and, and this is the thing. So and it tastes way better than the fillet from the same animal. Yeah, exact same animal, yep. tenth of the cost. Yep. So if you're feeding a family. Um, you know, it, it or even just just you don't you don't feel like spending forty pound a week on your yeah. on your food budget. Um, you know these these cuts are incredible, and you just need to learn a little bit. Absolutely, uh, it's, that's the thing. It's, it's getting that information over to people. We do a lot of blind tasting on on yeah. steak as well yeah. on our events, where we tend to not tell people what it is. Yeah, and there you will invariably come up with things like ribeye mm. uh, or that kind of you know that kind of uh, cut. Because obviously they can see it's got fat in it, it's mm. got a lot of flavour. They're going to assume that it's not fillet because mm. it says, and we're trying to, you know, uh, you know, trying to do something a little bit different with something. Yeah. I don't want to say educate because it's, it's not. You've got to be interested, and uh, and I just want to give people information, introduce them to things. Education is something different. Um, but you know, so they'll come up with things like ribeye. But again, ribeye, 40, 50 quid a kilo for, mm. for really good quality mm. animals. Mm. But again, you know, the omelette, the hanger steak, bavette, skirt steak, um, you know, these kind of cuts, they're from the same animal. Mm. So you're getting the same quality of fat, yeah. um, the same quality of the meat, you know, eight, ten quid a kilo maximum, um, you know, for those cuts. And they will taste a hundred times better than any fillet steak you've ever eaten. There's a reason why on menus, fillet steak always comes with a sauce. Yes. Because the steak doesn't taste of anything. It's got no fat. Yeah. Um, and you get a beautiful texture. Oh, I yeah. mean, oh, the texture is unbelievable. The eating quality will be beautiful. Yeah. It will taste of nothing. Yeah. Get yourself a piece of meat that's got some fat in it. Yeah. Cook it well. Yeah. That's flavour. So, and it's better for you. With um, one of my favourite cuts, periodically I will eat a ketogenic diet yep. for, for for a period of time. Um, and when you do that, you want the fattiest cut of meat that you possibly can. Yep. Right. So my personal favourite. It's lamb breast. Okay, yeah. And this is normally around about four pounds a kilo, yeah. maybe maybe five pounds a kilo. Yep. And some butchers will even give it away mm. because they they like say they normally it, it's it's unsellable. Yeah, because there's so much people won't go for. Yeah. Um, but it, it's it's unbelievable if you know how to cook it properly. Uh, it, it's an absolutely unbelievable cut of, uh, of of meat. And again, you can get super high quality meat for yeah. for very very little. Going back to. Um, my conversation with my father about about good quality food and, and how things used to be uh my grandmother his mother uh gave me a cookbook a few years ago from 1939 <laughs> wow uh and it's it's like fully brown and all the pages are yeah, aged yeah. and all this sort of stuff and you know there's there's uh firstly the thing that always makes me laugh is the uh, recipe for christmas pudding okay which uh, starts with like dry the fruit in front of the fire you know? <laughs> <laughs> yeah nice yeah substitute open the packet yeah you know, things like that um, but it's got recipes for like lamb's brain stew and, yeah. and, and all this sort of stuff mm. and all of these things that are awful that, that are horrendously looked down on today yeah. but from a nutritional perspective let's say you were going to look at um, studies of the Inuit mm. or studies of, of kind of largely untouched hunter-gatherer tribes mm. the alphas in the tribe the, 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 the most socially uh, revered members of the tribe mm. always get things like the liver and the heart yeah. and the lungs mm. first they get first dibs on all of those yeah. things similar if you look at how a wolf will eat mm. a wolf the, the alpha will get the internal organs yeah. the muscle meat is largely left to um, scavengers yeah the, um, what's called the red offal is, is the yeah. that's the packed nutrient and, and yeah. so and so today 
you know, very, very few people eat offal. One of my favourite breakfasts is lamb's heart and scrambled eggs. Nice. Yeah. Yeah. It's absolutely unbelievable. Mm. And for 70 pence, you can get a 200 gram heart. Yeah. You know, which is, which is you know, it's packed Again, full of mitochondria. Most... It's incredibly nutrient dense. City um, centre butchers will probably give you it. Yeah. Because nobody but, will buy it. But why do you think have those values changed so much to the point where now the things that we value the most mm. are actually the, the pretty much the least nutrient valuable parts of, of the animal? I, th- I think there's a bit, well there's a, there's a, there's quite a I think there's quite a lot of reasons. One from the lack of education about food within schools nowadays in the curriculum, um, basic cookery. I mean even I mean I'm forty so you know even when I was at school um, there very little. Uh, uh, what would be, I suppose, classed as home economics or just some cooking skills or some sort of uh, food knowledge uh, to give uh, to give children, which, again, we're talking about the continent. That's, they get that at home anyway, but you know, it's also in their curriculums. I think we could do with a lot of that. That's the first thing I would say. But the second thing is I think we've gone from things like uh, take the Second World War, we've gone from a stage of necessity mm-hmm. of having to use everything uh, because of things like rationing and, and food availability. We've now come into a, a time of, let's say, plenty where everything is available, where fashion can lead people's uh, uh, food choices as much as and, uh, what do I have and what can I actually eat because I can afford it. Mm. It's as much, you know, that sort of fashions and what we see on TV, what the... Yeah, the the celebrity chef has cooked that week and uh, and that kind of thing. However, though, t- post two thousand and eight, mm. you did start to see a massive resurgence in restaurants of things like pork belly, mm. you know, and those cheaper yeah. cuts and flank steaks and yeah. feather steaks and things like that. Mm. Um, so I, I definitely think it's it's economically driven. Yes. Um, but what I find interesting is that the things that we value the most, mm. we just said about the difference between fillet yeah. steak and ribeye steak in mm. terms of the the cost per kilo. Mm. Um, you know, from one animal where a fillet steak costs fifty pound a kilo, the mm. ribeye steak will probably cost thirty five pounds a kilo. But why do we value that less? It's got more flavour mm. and it's got more fat. I think it's down in part to yeah. the way fat's been demonised over the last like since nineteen sixty. I think that's one hundred percent true. I mean, the the amount of um, of people that we get coming in the shop that you know are uh, you know there there's certain buzzwords that we get asked you know a, mm. uh, you know a lot, and one of them is you know fat is is a big problem. And I think you're absolutely right. People uh, understanding that fat isn't bad for you. It's actually the 100% opposite. Yeah. Um, but it's what fats. Where are you getting it from? How much are you eating? As, as mm. Obviously, you, as you know, your knowledge on this is, is way deeper than mine. Um, but I think you're right. But a lot of that is led by, uh, I suppose, this, the economic aspect. But a lot of that, again, for me, is fashion. Mm. It is what we... You, know, you take every single Pepsi or Coke ever at the moment, you know, again, other sodas are available. Um, <laughs> but, you know, <laughs> it's, the, everything is about, everything at the minute is sugar-free. Everything's this free. And, and you know, everything's about, um, but it's what they're putting in there instead. Mm. But the, the thing with fat is the same. Everything's about low, this is low calorie. This is low fat. This mm. is, mm. and actually you, we, as, as, as you teach uh, and, and people who know what they're talking about teach, it's, it's about a balanced diet. It's about where you're getting those things from. Mm. Sugar mm. is not bad for you. Mm. How much of it are you eating and where are you getting it from yeah, that it's temptation. become bad for you? Absolutely. Fat, not bad for you. But if you've got a problem with fat, where are you getting it from and how much are you eating? Mm. It's just having that understanding of, of well, that. Well, a, a classic example is um, in, in most uh, burger joints, like McDonald's is a, a yeah. classic example of this. When they first opened, 
they would fry everything in beef dripping. Mm. And that's that's a saturated fat. It's incredibly stable at, at high temperatures. Yeah. Um, and if you're going to have fries on all day, not that I'm suggesting that fried food is in, ever, in, in any way good for you, but frying it in beef dripping is going to be a lot less bad for you mm. than frying it in vegetable oil. Yeah. The only reason they changed was not because they were an evil empire that were looking to give everybody heart disease, mm. but it's because everyone started fearing saturated fat for yeah. no good reason. So then they, they switched to a, an unsaturated fat, and keeping unsaturated fat like vegetable oil heated all day is, is horrendous. Yeah. Because now the fat's damaged. Yeah. And it's the damaged fat that is really, really bad for us. Yeah. And what people don't realise is that the more saturated a fat is, the more robust it is, the less likely it is to oxidise and go rancid, mm. and the less likely it is to be damaged, and the less likely it is to therefore have a negative health outcome. Yeah. Um, so, you know, things like getting really good beef tallow or lamb tallow yeah. or even lard, Dripping, you know, and dripping, dripping and lard are so much better. And, and and frying your eggs in the morning in that, yeah. or or you know using that to shallow fry mm. whatever, like to even a stir fry, yeah. you know, is so much better for you than even olive oil. Yeah. You know, which is, because it's so much more robust. But it's we, we still haven't quite gotten over that demonization mm. that that eating any amount of fat was going to give us a heart attack. Mm. Uh, and I think that that's one of the worst things that's happened to quality food. Because, like you say, you know, food producers—they're led by the market. Yes, it's what people buy. It's what producers are gonna are gonna produce. Yeah. Uh, and and unfortunately, what people buy has been has been mm. based on uh, very very faulty and shady science for for decades now. Yeah. And it's starting to change. You know, people are, are starting to realize that that fat should never have been as demonized as it as it mm-hmm. has been. Yeah. Um, but uh, yeah, it, it's interesting that... Um, it's the same. Processed food is the same. And, you know, absolutely. Sort of, a couple of years ago, there was this big thing about processed food, is, uh, and it was carcinogenic. Yeah. Basically, processed food is going to give you cancer. It was that, that was everywhere, certainly in the food industry, that was all we heard for a good six months to, to a year. Uh, and it, it's, it's factually not true. <laughs> you know, fermented products or, or, and types of charcuterie uh, fermented foods we're now realising through science actually it's the total opposite they're actually there's really well, positive benefits yeah and, and so where that comes from is um, a, a type of nutritional science called epidemiology mm. so I'm going to have like a little tiny rant about this, cause this go is for it man a bugbearer you know me I love a rant about so, food <laughs> so epidemiology the way that epidemiology works is that it takes huge numbers of people and it asks them um, what they ate like normally a food frequency questionnaire yeah which so there's the first problem, is that if I ask you what you ate, mm. it's going to be different from what you actually ate. Oh, Nobody yeah. accurately reports that, partly because memory is inaccurate, yeah. and partly because you know that you're going to get judged, Shame. so you, you <laughs> make it seem a little bit better. Yep. Um, and then what they'll do is they'll follow up with those people mm. years down the line, and just look at like who died of what, who contracted which disease, and look for patterns, right? And this is great science for generating a hypothesis, yeah. but it cannot, an inherent limitation of this type of, of, of hypothesis is that it cannot infer causality mm. there's no way that you can say a causes b no. from pure epidemiology all you can do is demonstrate association yeah so when they associate you can start looking for patterns you can't um, prove it and when they associate uh, meat consumption with um with with cancer uh, consumption mm. one of the most and this i'm not going to go on about this for too long i could do an entire podcast on why <laughs> this is not the case um but but one of the things that you can't extrapolate from that is that if the health advice for the last five decades has been to reduce pro- uh, processed meat, to reduce meats, 
and eat less of that, mm. then people who are more health conscious will do that. Yeah. And therefore, but they're more health conscious in many other ways. They're more likely to have a gym membership. They're more likely to take a multi-nutrient. They're less yeah. likely to smoke. They're less likely to drink. Yeah. They're more likely to, to be affluent. Yeah. They're less likely to be on benefits. Like yeah. all of these different things. Mm-hmm. So then you get to the end of it and you say, well, we can control for all those different factors and we still think meat causes cancer. Mm. You have not demonstrated causality. Yeah. You've demonstrated an association that can be um, described uh, and, um, and uh, justified, if you will, in many, many different ways. Oh, and I'll give you another statistic on this. So this, uh, this statistic is from 2014, okay. but I still use it today yeah. because it, I just love how it demonstrates the lunacy of association um, and, and, and criminalizing something because mm. of an association. Male hairdressers are more likely to contract AIDS than males in other professions. But that does not infer that cutting hair gives you AIDS. <laughs> right? It, it doesn't... There's, 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 it's a weird association. Yeah, yeah. There could be any number of different explanations for it. Yeah. But none of which is that hairspray or cutting hair or, you know, hair yeah. gel on their, on their hands causes the HIV virus or, or, or whatever. Like, it's just... It's just a ludicrous association that yeah. allows you to come up with a hypothesis and then test it with real science. Yeah. Uh, and uh, again, you know, when you look at uh, the process of fermenting foods, yeah. um, the process of, uh, of properly producing um, really well, uh, uh, well-produced meat, even mm. well-produced charcuterie, even well-produced yeah. uh, you know, sausages and things like that, yeah. um, there is an enormous difference between you know, a packet of 40% pork highly produced sausage where the pork was crap you know it was probably blasted off the bones it was probably yeah. all of the all of the bits that you could never sell yeah. versus I, I know that you had a, a, a you did an experiment where you tried to make, build your own Delilah sausages mm-hmm. we do when we make them tell us about that yeah, so, so, I mean, and just to illustrate the difference between that and the and the incredibly priced yeah. cheap crap I mean, that you can get absolutely everything you just said for you know first of all intensively reared pork so yeah. you're, the pork you're starting with doesn't matter where you get it from on the animal yeah. is already not as nutritionally beneficial as something that is um, free range or rare breeds and, and even you've got to be careful with buying rare breed pork because just because it's rare breed doesn't mean that the farmer was any good or yeah. the abattoir was any good or the butcher's any good rare breed is just potentially a benefit if all the other bits tick into place but you know, you, we get a lot of people asking, oh, I can't have sausages because I'm, I'm gluten intolerant. Mm. And as a, our sausage is gluten-free, but not because we've tried to make a gluten-free sausage. We just made a sausage properly. Yeah. Um, you know, it, it should have a natural casing, uh, so a hog casing. Um, uh, we only use <coughs> uh, free-range uh, pork and everything else in there. Our uh, sausage recipe is 97% meat. Mm. Uh, the other 3%, I can tell you, is is dried herbs uh, and salt and pepper. Mm. Um, the salt that we use is um, uh, sea salt, uh, because, again, it's way better for you. Um, it than uh, It does taste a lot better, but the mineral content, etc., is way better than something like PDV salt, uh, pure dry vacuum salt. Um, uh, and so every element we try to break down into, into the best that we can do. Now, the reality is, it's raw, dry herbs, hog casings, and free-range pork. Now, free-range pork, the difference in cost, uh, from our point of view, of, of from uh, something that's uh, intensively reared, not, you know, let's say the worst quality that I could buy if I wanted to as a business, to the absolute top-end free-range rare breed that we do buy, is about 50p a kilo. Wow, so that little. It, it's tiny. It really is tiny. Now, 
if you're going to use, you know, the, the obviously all the other processes and things, you know, using a hog casing rather than a, a synthetic, a couple of pence more, this is a couple of pence more, of course sea salt is a couple of pence more. So yes, it is a more uh, expensive process than, let's say, your, you know, your, your, your bangers that you're going to buy from the, uh, from the supermarket. But it's considerably better for you. And I think that we've gone through, again, sausage is a great, uh, product to prove that we've gone through people thinking oh it's not very good for you it's kind of a sausage mm, mm. there's nothing in there that's not good and if it's made bad, properly yeah, exactly yeah um, it's the quality of the product absolutely things like rusk and bread have been put into sausages to hold moisture mm. because the quality of the pork is so crap in the first place yeah. um, so it's not rusk and bread is not in your sausage to make it taste better <laughs> to make it some kind of nutritionally balanced it's not. It's there because there's a problem mm. because of the crap that's going in there. So it's there to kind of mask and help fix the symptom mm. of a problem. Mm. Um, so hence, most sausages are not gluten-free. It's like making the unsellable meat sellable yeah. by adding a load of crap to it. To hide is... the fact that it's crap in the first place. Yes. So, yeah, if you, it, it, so that's what we've tried to do. It's a bit kind of a version of a, a Lincolnshire sausage, so heavily seasoned, lots of black pepper. Um, and you know again we crack the black pepper when we use it rather than doing it in advance mm. all these little things make a big difference in flavour mm. which is beneficial to a product but most of the decisions are based on I could buy cheaper casings mm. I could buy cheaper pork uh, and the cuts that we use we use shoulder and leg so we don't use um, what most places would use for, for sausages which is the you know the um, you know the bits that are not can't be sold let's just say can't be sold in a butchery counter yeah um and they are sometimes mechanically removed from the bones the meat uh, and certainly in big plants just uh, touch on that what so for anyone who doesn't know what mechanically reclaimed meat is <laughs> just tell us what actually happens if if you imagine you uh, have uh, a a carcass and you have a jet washer uh <laughs> basically that's what you're doing you are taking all of the good bits off that carcass that are going to go into something else. So to your butchery counter, your, all your chops and your belly and the legs and, and everything else are going to go into good stuff. Then you're going to have what's left and you're going to get your carter jet washer and you're going to blast what's left off the bones and there's your sausage meat. Mm. Um, that's the very worst end of, uh, of, the, of the industry mm. um, uh, of, of, yeah, of how and you And doesn't a lot of that have to be treated? Because uh, I, I remember this from somewhere, correct me if I'm just talking out my arse here, um, but it doesn't have to be treated with ammonia because it's from parts of the animal that if you were to actually eat it before it being kind of sterilised almost, mm. it would genuinely make you very, very ill. It's entirely possible. That I don't know for sure, but it's entirely... Right. It wouldn't... With, with, certainly with the meat industry at that end of the, of the yeah. uh, industry, it wouldn't surprise me. Certainly. Yeah. It would, yeah. certainly would not surprise me. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I, th I think it's, but that's the thing, you, I was going to say this earlier, I think one of the problems that we have, is, certainly in this country, with like everything we're talking about now, maybe people listening to this might go, oh, but yeah, I didn't know that. And that's, that's fine, that's the whole point of places like Delilah, that's the whole point of places like yourself, to have that knowledge available mm. to, to mm. help people. But we, as a country, actually, and legislation-wise, could be doing a lot more. Because um, you look at what we... We're going down the route at the moment with a lot of our food labelling that everything's about uh, nutritional content. Yeah. So, you know, all of the, the, the traffic light system that we now have uh, in this country. 
Yeah, now, let me start on that. Yeah, it, it, it's, the problem is that even the worst piece of food in the world has some sort of nutritional, so it, you'll, yeah. you know... It's still got some grams of protein and yes, some grams of you know, carbs. And, and, and the other thing is, how many people actually look at that yeah. and either A, read it, yeah. or B, know what it means? Yeah. That's, the, that's the other question. Yeah. I think we'd be much more beneficial uh, as, a, as a country just making people, or com- companies, um, answerable to what they're actually making. So yes. what's actually in it? Yeah. Not, you know... Be, sort of skipping around a lot of the words and things that we, we should use in things um, or the reality um, you know as I was saying about you know sodas and things on the, on, the, on adverti- advertisements at the moment you know it's like yeah it's sugar free and all this and you've got lots of sexy looking people jumping around going skateboarding and cycling and all these kind of things and you think wow that must be really good for me and you said, well, okay, do a little bit of research into aspartamine and, and, yeah. and all these kind of things. And that's okay. Yeah, okay, well, yeah. maybe that's not quite as good for you as these wonderful adverts make you think. But those adverts are not illegal. Yeah. That's absolutely fine. You're not breaking any legislation. And actually, for me, I think that they're misleading. Yeah. And for people that don't have access to that kind of knowledge like we've had yeah. because of the industries we're in and our interests... You know, you can be led into thinking, oh, I'm drinking something that's good for me. Mm. Not just that it's not as bad for me yeah. as the one with sugar in. Yeah. You're actually being led to believe that this is good for you. Yeah. Now, I think that's where, as a country, we need to, you know, be a little bit... It's just honesty. It's not about, you know, sort of painting over the cracks. But, you know, there, there's a lot of legislation that we have in this country that I think we go the wrong way. So we, we almost assume that a lot of... Um, uh, that people buying the products are, are stupid. So we have to go down this route of it being, you know, the traffic light system, etc. Mm. The problem is that that almost, because we make it idiot-proof to a certain degree, well, that has a process of creating the person that is reading it in the first place because yeah, they don't like have to research anything. You don't need to know anything. Absolutely. Don't yeah. worry about it. The government's got everything covered for I, you on the labelling. And I if think, you believe that, I mean, that's dangerous. I, th- I think as well, you know, it's... It, um, what we try to do here at Thrive is to educate people that the, the most important thing is food selection and food quality. Yeah. And if you get those two things right, you're probably not going to go far wrong. Yeah. So we, we counsel our clients that 90% of everything that you eat should be a, 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 a naturally occurring whole food. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, broccoli, like, you know, pig. Like, if you're eating like meat and veg every day. Yeah. You're not um, going to be far wrong. Yeah, it, it's plants and animals, yeah. right? And then, and then the um, uh, the second rule is that that should be of the highest quality that you can that you can afford and, and source. Mm. And if you get those two things right, you're naturally going to be in a very very low processed diet. You're yeah. naturally you're going to find it very very difficult to overeat carbs when your carbs are coming from potatoes and yeah. rice and, and and broccoli. Just right? salt alone because yeah. it's not going to be processed. Your salt it, content's going exactly be exactly. Yeah. So th- so those two rules take care of so many bases. Mm. And then the ten percent of the time that you digress, like we said before, you know, sugar isn't inherently bad for you. If I eat a brownie, I'm not going to suddenly like balloon up to be clinically obese or die yeah. of diabetes. Like, yeah. It's not going to happen, right? Mm. But the, the problem is the poison's in the dose yeah. uh, and the problem's in the overall context of the diet. Yeah. So if I eat 90% of my meals from, from plants and animals, mm. the 10% of the time that I indulge in you know, something that's processed, a glass of wine, something that's made out of pure mm. sugar, you know, something that you know, is, is totally uh, manufactured, yeah. the chances are it's going to have such a, a low and negligible impact mm. on my overall health mm. that I can do that guilt-free. I can yeah. not worry about it. But 
if 90% of your diet is that stuff... Yeah, if and only all 10%, you're eating is brownie. Yeah, <laughs> then, then you have yeah. a problem, right? And that, I think, is... is I definitely like to echo that. I think one of the things that we, we really need to do as a society is kind of hark back to just preaching that, you know what, if you're eating mostly real food, mm. you're going to be okay. Flexitarian diet, for mm. me, is... A flexitarian? Yeah. Whoa, this is the, basically whatever you want. And yeah. it's eat uh, a broad spectrum and eat... Um, you know, it's that uh, everything in moderation kind of you know style of, uh, well, well, of eating. Well, th- well, this is this is the thing. You know, I I I, I always rail against people who uh, subscribe to, um, and I'm not going to call it a diet. I'm going to call it a nutritional dogma mm. because that's what it becomes. People identify that they're in this fucking club. Like I'm paleo. Oh, we're allowed to speak. Oh yeah, we're allowed. I've been holding that in. No, no, you're allowed to. <laughs> you can drop some f bombs if you want. Okay. That's okay. Um, so, you know, people who are in one of these clubs are like, oh, I'm, I'm vegan, I'm paleo, I'm, I'm this, I'm that. It's like, okay, you know what you are? You're an omnivore, right? Yeah. And there is such a thing as a shitty vegan diet, yeah. and there's a, a phenomenal vegan diet. Absolutely. You know, yeah. beer is vegan. Mm. Jelly sweets are often vegan. Mm. You know, like croissants can be vegan. Like, mm. there's, there's so many different pieces of crap yeah. that can be... Same as gluten-free, right? Mm. It's gluten-free crap. You know, there's, it doesn't make it necessarily good. It, what what you want to it do... It also doesn't is, make it ethical. No. Because there's ethical yeah. good vegan diets and non-ethical bad and, and, and that, well. I think Absolutely. that the uh, yeah. saying that you're going to you're gonna emphasise the overwhelming majority of your diet on whole foods mm. and really pay attention to the quality mm. of that food and where you're sourcing it from, it leaves you enough flexibility. You can be vegan within that, that, that frame. Easy. You can be You can be carnivore mm. within that frame. You can be paleo within that frame. You can be pescatarian within that frame you could be carbitarian yep. within that frame like yep. you know you you can you, you can be so many different things but if you follow that you're going to find it hard to go too far wrong and that's one of the things that we know nutritionally you know why no one's come up with with the way that everybody should eat and the perfect diet that everyone should follow because it's really different for everybody yeah. and nutrition's a highly individualized thing which is why you you can find people who are vegan and it works brilliantly for them and they love it and they're very very healthy you can find people who do who, who do a vegan diet, and they feel horrendous. Mm. You can equally find people that, that do carnivore, yeah. literally hundred percent red meat diet. This yeah, is we're thing. talking about this morning. Yeah. This is amazing. This is, this yeah. is the thing, and actually, it can be amazing for autoimmune conditions. Mm. It can be amazing for inflammatory conditions. Mm. It can be amazing for your physique. And thus far, no one's really proven that it has any yeah, deleterious yeah. impact. It's interesting. So, yeah, so, so, interesting. so, but again, yeah. you know, we're, we're omnivores. We're, and I actually believe that we should vary our diet highly mm. over the course of the year. Like there was a study done in Oxford ages ago I think back in like 2011 or something like this um, that showed that uh, looking at uh, fossilised faeces from mm. humans living in the UK 11,000 years ago pre-agricultural revolution mm. your diet was similar to that of a wolf yeah. because guess what in the winter there's very little plant life yeah, that yeah. is available but you'll be hunting deer yeah. and, and you know fish and, and meat and, and that's what it's going to be and, yeah. and all this stuff yeah. right so whereas in the summertime fruit abound yeah. vegetables are plenty mm. you know the, there's no shortage of, of, of plant life yeah. um, and if you look at human existence over most of the world mm. that particularly the more the more away from the equator your genes are from mm. the more seasonal your diet would have been yeah. because because in the winter you would have been very high fat very high protein almost animal only yeah. food and in the summer you'd have had an abundance mm. of, of varied tasty different colour you know vegetables plants and yeah. animals uh, to, to, to enjoy 
Um, and I think that that's something that's missing now as well, yeah. is, is that, that, that 365 day availability of everything. Absolutely. You know, so like, is an avocado good for you if, if it's, you know, December and it's been shipped across from, you know, Dominican Republic and, and it's been, you know, picked from the plant for five days before it even yeah. gets to you and whatever? Like, probably not that much, you yeah. know? And this is what we were talking about earlier on about about the, the, the gentleman that mentioned the plant-based diet. Yeah. Like, there is, there is a crap plant-based diet. If you're eating Absolutely. strawberries from Israel in November... You know there are not going to be any nutrients in that no. in that for you. Whereas if you you're eating strawberries from Southern in September, it's probably going to be packed full of, full of nutrients. It's a totally different product that you're eating, mm. and I think that's the thing for me. So much of it boils down to just just knowing eat whatever you want. Yeah. But there's two things for me of and again diets and I think that I get so I get quite bored of uh, a lot of kind of the old school chef thing. Oh, bloody vegetarians, bloody beans. I've I've never really bought into that at all because it. What you put in your own body is totally up to you. That's that's the first thing. So understand that, that you can eat whatever you want and it's your decision and it's anybody's decision to do that. But know what you're putting in there 100%. and what it's going to do to you. So have a little bit of uh, knowledge or, or do a little bit of research and, uh, and don't take your knowledge from advertisements from the company right. that are selling you in the first place because they have a vested interest in you buying from no. them anyway. Um and it's it's knowing what's in things, and because we're we're so fed information through uh, you know MSG is another one you've heard me going on about yeah. before, and you know MSG monosodium glutamate everyone thinks is always oh, that horrible thing that we add to food and it's a man made thing. It's one hundred percent not. It's a totally natural thing. It's tomatoes are full of it. Uh, cheese is full of it. Mushrooms are full of it. Totally naturally, the aging process of meat increases monosodium glutamate. Uh, the aging process of, uh, of of cheese not only lowers lactose, which is another thing that people don't that again is interesting for people to know, um, but you know it, it it's something that we have then taken and gone right okay this has got lots of umami and meaty flavors let's take that syn- synthesize it and then put it into food that's why people when they eat things like Chinese food, for example, think, oh, I've got a, you know, or you get a takeaway, uh, you know, people think, oh, that MSG is giving me a headache. It's 90% of the time, it's not that. It's the level of salt in it because it's really crap quality food that's giving you dehydration, therefore giving you a headache. MSG has got nothing to do with it most of the time. And it is naturally in lots of yeah. things. But how many times are you told that? Yeah. Or how many times are you told well, MSG again, is this bad thing? It, it comes back to the same thing as the context of sugar, doesn't mm. it? Because MSG in the context of being um, thrown all over processed food in order to trick your taste buds into thinking that it tastes good yeah. and make it palatable mm. even though it's got it's got no nutrient nutritional uh, yep. value whatsoever. That's a bad use of MSG, mm. and that's and that's a, a a bad in quotation marks yep. uh, ingredient in that in that context. Yeah. But MSG in the context of of some phenomenal parmesan yep. is. Is really not. It, it's not inherently bad for you. It's not going to get into your system and poison you, no. like like a like arsenic, mm. uh, for example. It's um, it, it's very much not like that. Well, glutamate itself is naturally occurring in our bodies. So. Glutamate is actually the uh, one of the most powerful uh, stimulatory neurotransmitters. It's, yeah. it's like an active neuro neuroactive yeah. compound. Um, so we are going to have to pause for a half time yeah, yeah. because I'm going to have to go uh, and and pick up my daughter from uh, from nursery. However. We've circled round to a fantastic point where you were talking about how people don't people are entitled to eat whatever it is that they want to eat, but they should yeah. know what it is that they're putting yeah. in their body. Absolutely. And when we come back, we're going to kick off with how food industry tricks us. And I'm going to use one 
term to trigger you off on a, on a nice little rant so we can pick this up, we're going to talk about truffle oil. <laughs> That's one of my favourite rants, yeah, definitely. Okay then, so when we uh, it broke for half time, because uh, I had to go and pick <laughs> up the little one, um, we were just about to talk about, um, uh, I said to you, uh, truffle oil. Yeah. Because uh, I know that this is, a, this is a hot button for you in terms of uh, what the food industry actually puts in things and what they actually put on the label. Um, so yeah. you can, I'll just throw that hand grenade in and let you go. <laughs> it, it, for me, I think it is, it, um, you know, truffle oil is, uh, I'll get onto that as like the example, as the perfect example of it. But I think for me, it's labelling on, on food is, is one of the biggest things that we, as a country, are not great at. We spend a huge amount of time on like the traffic light system that we now have on our food. Uh, which I think helps if you are already knowledgeable about food and are, for example, calorie counting. Not that I'm suggesting that's a good idea because personally I don't think it is and I know not necessarily you either, although I'm not speaking on your behalf. Um, the, because everything has some sort of nutritional character. It could be incredibly bad for you, but you can probably work out what the salt content is and, and the calorie content. You could, you know, take this chair and there'd probably be some sort of calorie content. Uh, it doesn't mean you should eat it. Um, and I think for me, the, the, the legalities that we go down as a country are much more uh, geared towards uh, people being unintelligent. And actually, people aren't. People are pretty clever. Um, but they will go by what they're told because they're assuming it's correct. So with something like labelling, going down the route of uh, the traffic light system, I think we'd have been much better off and probably we should be going in that direction. I think we are as a country, but pretty slowly of just making companies tell the truth. Mm. It's not, they don't have to, you know, go into any huge detail or they just, what is in it mm. and how much of that is in it. And that for me is, is, it seems so very simple. And I'm sure there might be some people listening to this going, well, surely that's the case, isn't it? And wow, it just definitely is not. Um, you know, things uh, having legal definitions for a start. Mm. So things that you might be eating that say packed with antioxidants. Um, there's no legal or formal definition for saying that. Um, so you can have something that takes cereal, for example, that might be coloured with a fruit juice like orange juice. Um, so it was once had orange juice in it, which would be classed as the antioxidant. Therefore you can say it's had anti it's got antioxidants in it. it no it doesn't really <laughs> so but you can say that this is where the, the the legal and formal definitions of what people can put on labels so this is where you want to look at uh, full ingredients lists and actually do a bit of um, research yourself on products um, just to educate yourself a little bit on on what they actually mean antioxidants is is one of the best ones for me um, but truffle oil is another one, um, uh, and you know it's saying natural. You know th this is the thing. A lot of products say that natural or natural flavorings and this kind of thing. And again, you could you could have uh, you know a natural flavoring and pour it on this chair. It's still a chair uh, with natural flavoring on mm. it. But then you can say it's natural flavoring yeah. and healthy flavorings and yeah. all these kind of things. And it, again, it's the formal definitions of of what people put on labeling, which is. I think the biggest thing that uh, detracts people from what they're actually eating and what they think they're eating. Yeah. You know, I, I, it's funny that you use the word natural there because um, this is one of, one of my biggest bugbears mm. in, uh, in, in, in the food industry as well. 
is that the word natural, the freedom with which you can use that word mm. when it's talking about food products it's amazing, is, yeah. it, it is, is laughable. So like, say, for example, you wanted to use the phrase organic. Yeah. There are, rightly or wrongly, there are criteria that you have to pass and you yeah. have to be certified in order to say that something is organic. Yeah. But you can literally use the word natural on anything that you want. Yeah. And food industry, food, food manufacturers know that people associate the word natural with the word healthy. With health. And they yeah. think that if it's natural, it must be good for you, mm-hmm. which also is not true. Like yeah. arsenic is natural. Yeah. Um, a pack of hungry wolves is natural. Yeah. Like neither of these two things are very good for you. Yeah. There are plenty of natural things that are yeah. horrendous for us. Mm-hmm. Um and there are some artificial things that are pretty good for us. Yeah. Uh, you know, so one plus one doesn't equal two in that scenario. Mm. But because the food industry knows that there's zero regulation around the word natural, mm. you can use the word natural to describe anything. You could say that something has natural caramel flavour and there can be absolutely zero naturally occurring ingredients mm. in that flavouring natural caramel colour, natural, yeah. you know, fill-in-the-blank colouring. Mm. Um, all that means is that the colour itself represents something that is natural. It yeah. doesn't mean... that the, the use of that word means nothing whatsoever mm-hmm. in, uh, in, 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 in legal terms. Like yep. you say, there's no regulation whatsoever. The formal definitions, absolutely. And we, we've done little... We do little experiments like this in, in our tasting events where we give people... We did it not that long ago, actually, where we had some... Uh, I, I, I got some... Uh, uh, vanilla pods in uh, from Tahiti. Uh, they're naturally uh, the highest level of heliotrope in, in, in Tahitian vanilla. So the highest vanilla-y flavoured vanilla yeah. is Tahitian. Madagascar is slightly different. Uh, really good vanilla, smells, you get sweetness, but there's a there's a wonderful kind of leathery, cigar-y, leafy uh, kind of depth of flavour to proper vanilla. It isn't just sweet. But what we most of us will associate with vanilla is a syrup or something yeah. very very yeah. sweet. So for us, we give people, um, uh, you know, something like a a vanilla syrup, a little shot. Say what what what, uh, from a tasting point of view, is when we talk about palate and training and taste and what are you tasting? And people always say, well, that's vanilla. Okay, yep, yeah, got that one. And they feel yeah. like, yep, yeah, got that. What they're not tasting is vanilla. There's yeah. absolutely no vanilla in there. Yeah. Um, when you make somebody, uh, we've tried this again in the shop a few times just as experiments, um, you know, make a latte and when people ask for vanilla syrup, um, I don't know why people want vanilla syrup in coffee, but that's a different conversation. Uh, but <laughs> I agree, yeah, I'm with yeah, you. you want the coffee, surely you want the coffee. But anyway, uh, but, you know, it, and we actually make them with vanilla. So we'll split a pod, take the seeds, actually mix that in so your latte tastes of, uh, of, of vanilla actual vanilla mm. and we'll have people saying you know that it doesn't uh, taste you know like this doesn't taste of vanilla <laughs> vanilla syrup um so you know it's we know it, that's not about chastising the customer obviously we change it but uh, that's just for me and almost from that little bit of interest of what people's perception is because i find vanilla real vanilla like if you split a pot open mm. it's one of the easiest things to overdo yeah like it's powerful right it's you don't need powerful. a huge amount of it yeah. to make something and actually like if you overdo it you kind of have to balance that out with sugar yeah because the the the, the sweetness kind of takes mm. the edge off that 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 like strong vanilla flavor yeah. that, that that like say is, is really easy mm. to to kind of get carried away with in, in things so it's tell good. us tell us about because because i remember having this conversation with you at, mm. at delilah Tell us about the truffle oil because I think this really illustrates what's going on yeah. to people really, really well. So I, I go out and I buy a nice expensive bottle of truffle oil mm. that I'm dead proud of. Yeah. 
which pitfalls might I have just fallen into? <laughs> there's there's a, there's a reason why Anthony Bourdain, uh, yeah, bless him, uh, used to uh, used to refer to it as middle class tomato ketchup, uh, and I think the reason why because he knew what I'm about to say, which is that ninety nine percent of the truffle oil you buy certainly in this country has no truffle in it, uh, and this is a perfect example of how people get away with labelling. Truffle oil, uh, unless it states that it has real truffle in it, and it will give you a percentage of it, just read the back of the label, it will say something like truffle infused, truffle flavoured, truffle essence. Mm. There's all these different um, terminologies that can quite legally be put on a bottle mm. uh, of oil uh, that's never seen a piece of truffle in its life. What it tends to have in it is something called 2,4-dithiopentane. Now, that doesn't sound anything like truffle to me, and it certainly doesn't sound as appetising. It's also a byproduct of the petrochemical industry, uh, and its uh, it, its main ingredient is formaldehyde. Wow. So, you, from from a consumption point of view, a truffle that's dug up from the ground, it's a fungus, um, which has a wonderfully strong flavour, yeah. uh, and uh, you know, unfortunately, tend to be fairly expensive and seen as fairly elitist and that kind of thing. Um, so that's why people you know, buy something like that because they think, oh, this is a real treat, I'm going to treat myself. And rightly so, we should all do that with foods that we like to eat. Um, but actually, you're not tasting truffle. And this is another thing that we've... Uh, I did a, a talk at the, the college a few months ago where I spoke to some of the students and they got some truffle oil in the kitchen, so it was great. So I took a bottle of one of the ones that we have. We sell both because the price points are very different. Uh, but I took what, a... What might, what might we be talking? For, for genuine... Truffle oil, yeah. and for like a truffle infused oil. We've got fake, one at the moment oil. from uh, Northern Italy, uh, from one of our suppliers called Tenuta, uh, and that's got um, uh, fresh truffles in it. This is a hundred mil bottle, so not particularly big, and you're probably looking at about fifteen pounds. Wow. So it's not, it's not extortionate, but the difference in the amount that you use. This is the the other thing with this kind of thing is the amount that you need to use of the real truffle oil is tiny. Right. A couple of drops is in something is enough to, is, you know, you're borderline overpowering, overpowering anything. Mm. It's very mm. strong, but of actual truffle. And when you taste the two next to each other, as we did with the, um, with the coaching students there at the college, the difference is incredible. It's not until you try the two next to each other that you realise that the fake truffle oil tastes metallic. It's like mm. having a 2P in your mouth. You know, it's... it's um, you know, it has a really metallic aftertaste and doesn't have the umami that real truffle has. Mm. Um, uh, and it, it's a very different flavour profile. But it's also, again, when you when you read that on the back of a label, uh, on the back of that bottle, it can say truffle flavoured, mm. truffle infused, mm. truffle essence, all these kind of terminologies. Totally legal. Yeah. Absolutely fine. Not breaking any laws. Yeah. It's never seen a piece of truffle in its life. And that's the thing, you know, we're, we're talking about truffles. And it's formaldehyde. Yeah. <laughs> um, but, that's, but that is also very representative of what happens with a lot of different ingredients and a lot Absolutely. of different things. Yeah. Um, one, one thing that always gets me is, uh, is things like uh, Jersey milk and New Zealand lamb and, yeah, yeah, you know, yeah. things like this. And, and, like, it does not mean that that comes from Jersey and it does not no. mean that that comes from New Zealand. Like, no. that just means that it's a breed. Like, Jersey cow is a breed and you can yeah. have Jersey cows in Leicestershire mm. and you can call it Jersey milk just because yeah. it comes from a Jersey cow. But it doesn't say anything about what that cow ate yeah. or the type of life that that cow led mm. or the quality of that milk. It's it's just that breed, right? Absolutely. Same as, like, just the same as Aberdeen Angus steak or, mm. like, same New Zealand lamb or... Or uh, uh, Melton Mowbray um, pork pies, like yeah. it, it doesn't mean anything necessarily unless it's a protected term. So, 
it seems that in Europe that's something that like the the, the geographically protected regions and what's what what something has to be in order for it to be yeah. classed as champagne in order for you to be able to call it parmesan in order for you to be able to call it you know uh, uh, fill in the blank mm. it seems to be a lot stronger in Europe than it is in the UK the UK doesn't oh, seem to have protected names as as well we we tried it and then even that we messed up which is Stilton is a great example which I'll talk about but the Europe is is much better they have a much deeper uh, understanding and care of food culture. Mm. I think you learn a lot more as a child, uh, family culture of eating together, cooking together, learning about food and the area and the regions and these kind of things. It's kind of inbuilt into you know the the, the culture. Certainly, mainland Europe. Uh, you know, take France, Italy, Spain. Um, you know, their food cultures are are you know, historical. You know, they they go back a long way, mm-hmm. and they protect. Mm. with AOCs, DOCs, DOPs, all the different legislation that they have. Champagne's probably the one that most people will have heard of. Champagne's a tiny region in Mm. France, Mm. uh, and demand uh, outstrips production in the world about a million to one. Um, You know, so protecting that and not allowing people to use the word champagne on anything else uh, that isn't made in that region with the three specific grapes that champagne is made from in that specific way, the second fermentation in the bottle, well, you can't use the word champagne. And if you do, there's a lot of legal strength that will, you know, Mm. stop you from doing that and Mm. you will be in, you know, a a spot of bother. Um, But I think that's great. I actually think that's a good thing, that something that's made like that, that has that depth of history, that they do take that level of protection, say, no, we're so proud of this. It's not about, you know it's ours and it's not for anyone else they sell it all over the world so you can get it if you want champagne but they're so proud of something like that but take that right down to the humble cheeses little things that are two three quid you know little cheeses they'll still be made in a certain region with certain milk using a certain method that will they will themselves as the producer have to stick to certain legislation set up by the government uh, and the food standards uh, uh, sections of their own governments to be able to use the name mm. Take Parma ham, for example, or prosciutto in, in general, which is just cured meat. Parma ham is stamped, uh, and San Daniele, another type of prosciutto, is stamped also. Um, Parma has a little five-pointed crown on the leg when you buy it. That stamp is not owned by the producer of the prosciutto. That's owned by the government, and it stays in little lock boxes within their uh, charcuterie houses, and a member of the government who is employed you know, on their site is the person that goes, yep, you have made this to the correct um, uh, recipe uh, to to achieve. This is, you can now call this Parma ham mm. and it will be stamped by that person. That's not, it's the same as in abattoirs in this country. You know, there's a, there's a member of the Food Standards Agency in, in each each one that is not employed by the abattoir. He's there for food safety, etc., etc. Totally separate. And it's a great process for, for keeping standards keeping safety and all that kind of thing. It's great. They do exactly the same kind of thing, but with product. Mm. Um, you know, you can't you can't just start producing Parma ham and, and make a stamp and do it yourself. You can't because mm. you're breaking the law. Mm. And that's that level of care process because they also don't want somebody to get something in another country that says Parma ham on it and go, well, this is a bit crap. You know, the last one I had was really good. Well, if it hasn't got the stamp on it, it ain't the right thing, mm. uh, and that's the the that for me is that level of care and um, sort of passion that they have about product. 
we tried it at Stilton, as I mentioned. Stilton's a great product and something certainly less than Nottingham and, and Derby where it can legally be made now with its protected designation. Um, you know, it, it's fantastic and it's exported all over the world. Um, that's why at Christmas it's pretty hard to get hold of because a lot of it goes to the States, a lot of it goes to the continent because um, it's, it's known the world over. Stilton was never made pasteurised and it was never vegetarian. It's been made for... Long Clawson, for example, has been making cheese for over 100 years. Mm. You know, these processes were, were new. So when the legislation came in, it was made that, OK, to use the word still, and it's got to be vegetarian and it's got to be pasteurised milk. So it's not the same as what it used to be. Mm. And it's, a, it's kind of an example of, of us as a, as a kind of country even going down the route of, all right, we're going to protect this because it's great and still falling over the last hurdle and messing it up because... Unpasteurised and non-vegetarian or organic versions of Stilton still exist. Stitwerton, for example, it's one of my favourite blue cheeses, made in Nottingham, uh, North Nottingham, works out with the Welbeck Estate. A guy called Joe Schneider is an absolute genius. Um, he calls his cheese Stitwerton, although it's a Stilton recipe. It's unpasteurised as it always used to be, and it's uh, you know made the way that Stilton always has been made until the legalities came in. Mm. But weirdly, he now can't legally use the word Stilton, so he has to call it Stitterton. Um, which, it, going back to Doomsday, but with the region itself, the area, would used to be called Stitterton, hence why he's called it that. Um, but that's the weird thing of it. So we still have a version of what it should be that we can be proud of and go, that's the bloody cheese, that is the one. Mm. Um, that That's how it's always been made. That's mm. the process, made by hand, totally unpasteurised. Um but you can't use the word still now because of the legality. And it's like, oh, for fuck's sake, can't we just, you know, let, let mm. we've gone down that route of going, okay, this is so good, we need to protect it. And still, in my personal opinion, you know, messing it up by not keeping the, the traditions. The reason they've done that, though, is to make it more marketable. So I understand yeah, the reason, but that for me is not food culture. It's, yeah, it's, it's like you say, those, um, those, those, those regions and those foods that have uh, protection in, um, in, in Europe was done so to to protect something that was a, a quality um, and a, a product that, that was uh, it was intended to preserve that um, uh, for, for future generations Absolutely. and for that region whereas yeah. it seems like it's been protected out of a, a more uh, commercial motivation Absolutely for, for some of the things you know, in, that in my opinion it has okay. um, and I think that but the other thing with things like pasteurisation and that kind of thing it means you can produce more it's mass production and that, for me, is, you know, again, is the total opposite of, of why something should be protected. Yeah. Um, so, you know, it's a shame. We have a few things uh, in this country, like West Country Cheddar, and a few other things that there are certain designations on, Mount Mowbray Port Pies. Um, again, I mean, I was born and bred in Mount Mowbray, so, you know, I, I, I feel like I can say what I'm about to say. I don't think Mount Mowbray Port Pies are the best Port Pies, mm. um, personally. Uh, you know, I think they're great. But, you know, I think there's a lot better ones out there than, you know, I think the pastry's too thick and I think they're slightly overcooked for me personally. But that's because I care and I taste a lot of them. I eat a lot of pot pie, I love pot pie. <laughs> you know, but I'm from there. You know, my, my dad's, uh, you know, sort of threatened to disown me on many occasions because of my opinion on pot pies. But, um, you know, that's where it comes down to, right, passion and care and per- yeah. personal choice, of course it is, of, of which ones you, you prefer. Um, but, you know, the, it... If you're gonna, uh, if you're going to give something protected status, 
there should be a real reason for that and it, it should be something that's culturally necessary it mm. needs to be kept as a, a as a process there's some real history to it and there's some whoever makes it there's some, some real passion I'm not suggesting Stilton producers aren't passionate about their product but I just think you know something like Stitterton that probably most people have never heard of if you want to eat Stilton how it was should be made and how it used to be made well that's the only one you can now eat because it's that is unpasteurized mm. it's made you know the Welbeck estate there um, uh, at, the, at the creamery there it's amazing you know they literally have it comes from the milking parlour into a tank from that tank into the dairy straight into the vat and there's only one they do it all by hand all the curd is ladled by hand um, and you get a cheese that is incredibly so creamy so rich mm. a really great product um, so if you want to try Stilton mm. really you've got my personal opinion you've got to eat Stilton so, th- so this is great this brings me to, uh, to something else I wanted to, uh, to, to, to get your opinion on um, you mentioned Warbeck Estate it's one of the epicenters of artisan food in the UK mm-hmm. uh, uh, you know it's like a, a, one of the last remaining kind of bastions of doing things really properly yeah. painstakingly properly slowly yeah. You know, uh, and and it seems to me as somebody who knows a, a bit about food, but obviously nowhere near as much as you as yourself, that uh, there's an inverse relationship between scale and quality. Yeah. Um, uh, you know, f- a lot of the time, I'm sure that there are exceptions to that rule. I'm mm. sure that there are things out there that people have been able to produce on mass um, and and maintain very very high mm. food standards. But it seems that it's impossible to do it with meat. Mm. It's very very difficult to do it with baked goods it's mm. very very difficult to do it with vegetables you know um so obviously the overwhelming majority of people who are listening to this will shop at supermarkets for, mm. for the majority of their uh, of their food um and you know that that in my head that poses a problem like how are, is it is a huge chain of shops a huge chain of huge shops mm. going to be able to provide us with environmentally friendly ethically sound nutritionally very very high quality and delicious produce mm. it seems like an incredibly difficult task so i'd be really interested to get your perspective on um what the solution is um and, and the, some practical advice for mm. for all of us listening on how can we how what do you what, what are the basic principles of how you source delicious really good quality food for yourself how do you pick things out you know uh, and 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 get the things that are still being produced properly that are still um you know as nutritionally dense and sound as, mm. as they were in that original conversation with my father that i spoke to you about yeah 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 it's it's doing a bit of research you know the the the, the answer to your first question is how can supermarkets do it well the answer is they can't so mm. that, that's the very simple for for you as a consumer the other thing with supermarkets is they sell what people buy of course i think yeah. we talked about this before so the more people start buying the free-range chicken well, the more free-range chicken will be available, therefore yeah. the more the price will come down and it will make it more yeah, uh, they're not commercially even, sound. They're not evil, they're market-driven. Absolutely, of course. They, they sell what we buy, that's, that's it. But certainly from a meat point of view, certainly in, I don't know, anywhere really in the country where you're not going to be have at least, because it's a big growing area of the food industry at the moment, farm shops and, and delicatessens, which is great news, Um where there isn't a good quality farm shop or delicatessen near you. Mm. The reason I say that is not not because of places like you know Delilah, although hopefully we're one of them, but we buy our meat uh, as a business from uh, from Harker's Farm Shop in um, 
uh, Kipson Wolds. They're using their own animals uh, from Blackberry Farm. Um, it's all butchered on site. There's a huge amount of care and attention that goes into their animals, into their butchery. Uh, even the kind of the the the, the post mortem butchery side of things, a huge amount of respect for the animal and what they're selling, and knowledge also. So you know the you're you're buying something that's been well looked after, uh, well looked after, and has been um, bred and has been reared by the same people that are going to butcher it. The reason I mention that as important is because well, if they're rearing the cattle and they're going to be the ones having to sell it, it's not in their interest to rear it badly because they've got to sell it. So they they're going to put more effort into looking after the animal properly because. It's in their interest commercially to have something nice in the counter. Yeah. So they're not going to cut corners on what they feed them, how they rear the animals, because mm. they're the ones that are going to have it in the counter. So if it's bad and uh, you know quality at the end, they're not. What's the point? It's not commercially sound. So it's just having a little bit of knowledge yourself of going right. Where is my meat coming from? You know, it's okay having, you know, you buy something from the supermarket. And the supermarkets know that this is a good thing to do. Um, because if you buy a piece of meat now from a supermarket, you'll see it's got a picture of a nice smiley farmer on there, and mm. this is this is Steve the farmer, and these are all his cows, and you know what they don't tell you is it's probably not all from his um, or hers, whoever the farmer may be, um, you know. But it's you know they don't tell you how big his farm is, how uh, potentially um, you know intensively reared some of the products may be. Mm. Um, you know, it's not a clear indication uh, for me um, and it's things like people look for uh, things like red tractor certified they look for things like uh, fair trade organic um, all these kind of things free range um, but it's also having a little look into what they actually mean um, and for me you know knowing where we get our meat from because I've literally been to the farm mm. knowing the butchery because I've been to the butchery and I speak to the guys, you know, Rupert and his son Sam and, uh, at, um, at Harker's. Um, so there's a confidence in, right, I, I know what you guys do is right. I know the quality is good. Um, and, you know, to be honest, for what you're buying from, from there, it's not that much more expensive than the supermarket. They also have um, a lot of vegetables and things available that are, are grown locally. I would also mention companies like Fruit Basket in West Bridgeford. Um, who we use again as a business, um, Jonathan and his brother uh, Ben, they're a fantastic business. They, you, um, you know, things like their innovation uh, of things that they grow themselves now, using a lot of heritage, um, uh, things like tomatoes, we get chard from them as well, all heritage uh, versions of, and they're not hugely expensive. But the quality is amazing. Mm. Um, and if you go to something like their greengrocers, you're buying, you know, but man, I, I struggle to spend 10 quid in there. Yeah. You know, I get a basket yeah. full of stuff and I'm, yeah. I'm constantly amazed at how little it costs yeah. Yeah. just to go and go there and buy something that's good. Mm. Uh, I know they know what they're, again, you speak to someone like uh, Jonathan at Fruit Basket, who I speak to, his knowledge of his products is incredible. Mm. Now that, again, gives you confidence in not just that you're buying great quality, but that he's sourcing good quality because he cares about it. Yeah, you yeah. can tell when you listen to somebody like that, it's like, right, this guy cares. He's not going to buy something and go, no, nah, it's not really 
it's not really what I want, but it's okay, we'll just chuck it out, it'll be all right, no one will know. He's not going to do that. You know, he's, you listen to him talk about his business and his product, and hopefully he talks the same as I do about my business. That's, he actually cares. Mm-hmm. You know, I think his pride and his care about his product, same as me, wouldn't allow him to sell something that he knows is a bit junky. Mm-hmm. He wouldn't. Mm-hmm. He just wouldn't do it. He, w- he would rather not have that product mm-hmm. for a few days while he gets the right stuff. And I think that's the difference with going to an independent yeah. that cares about what they're doing. Um, because more people do that, more farm shops are going to start popping up, more quality will increase, the more supermarkets will stop selling uh, the, the lesser quality, so they will start adjusting. Mm. The perfect scenario is that that quality of meat is available in supermarkets, but that's only ever going to happen if that's all people are buying. Mm. It seems to me that, that like commercially the only way that that would happen is that um, the supermarkets would have to identify and partner with a local farm in mm. every, you know, in every location that they yeah. that, that they were in, um, which certainly seems like that's you know possible and, and, and doable. But then it's the logistics for a big business, but it's yeah. possible, yes, yeah. But I would also say, that like you know, exactly how you said we, the the biggest vote that we have is with where we spend our money Absolutely. and and i can't speak for you know someone who's listening to this in, in an area of the country that's you know completely different mm. um you know i can't i can't speak for for 100 of, uh, of the uk but certainly nottingham isn't isn't massively unique in the in the, the fact that within a 15 30 minute drive of pretty much anywhere in this city mm. you can find a really good farm shop you can yeah. find a really good good source like you know, I, I go to Coniston, yep. um, uh, out, near, out near me, and there's a massive sign in the field that says cattle grown here, yep. sold there. And, you know, sometimes when you park your car, mm. the, the cattle are actually, like, on the other side of the fence, mm. you know, eating the grass, like, like they're right yeah. there. The, the quality of the meat is fantastic. And that's not unique. Mm. You know, over in over in Bridgeford, there's a butcher's, um, which is, uh, uh, I can't remember the, the guy's name, it's on Melton Road. But he owns the um, the farm, mm-hmm. and so you're buying directly from the from, from the guy who, who's farming it. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and obviously, you you've got to do a little bit of research into what the quality of that farm is, because yeah. just because you're buying directly from the farm, it doesn't mean you're buying directly from a good farm. Absolutely. But it's not it's not epically difficult to to, to go straight to source, mm. um, and I feel that uh, you know maybe a, a little bit of a devolution back towards. Maybe maybe go into three different locations to mm. get your your weekly food shop. Yeah. Although it's a bit of an inconvenience, um, definitely seems to have you know a huge payoff mm. um, instead of instead of that convenience of getting everything from from all in one fell swoop. Yeah. You know, likely online. Um, you you can you can maybe just put in that little bit of extra mm. effort to go to a fishmonger's to get your fish and to go to a. a yeah, just, uh, I think one of the things that I'm sure that some people will be thinking, listen to this, and and the conversation I have a lot with people is that people think, but I haven't got the money. Yeah. You know, it's it's always the first uh, issue, and you know, in certain cases, it's genuine, uh, and I, and I understand that, and I think for, you know, it it remains for people that maybe do have a little bit of expendable income it's not that much more expensive i'm not going to pretend it is do you know what though i would i would contest i would contest so mm. i think yes i I hear that argument myself as well Mm. but when you ask people how much they spend on food Mm. there's there's, there's three two or three points that i would like to make on this first of all you have to spend money on food yeah it's unavoidable you're spending some money you Mm. are you are spending a budget now secondly i would say if you if you find eating fresh good quality food more expensive than eating 
processed and prepared food at mm. the uh, at the supermarket. One well, first of all, that's a false economy because your health is going to suffer mm. quickly and rapidly and massively over the course of your life. So you keep that up for three decades, and you will not be in the same place as if you'd invested in your in the quality of your nutrition. And secondly, if you learn how to cook better, mm. you can you can mitigate all of the extra cost of the ingredients that you're buying because. Mm. Like we said before, you know, I would much rather spend seven pound a kilo on shin of beef from an an, an incredibly high quality mm. animal than I would spend thirty pound a kilo on sirloin from a, a lesser quality mm. um, animal. Like I'm gonna get way more nutrients. I'm gonna be able to feed my family even cheaper, and and it's gonna be and it's gonna be better for the environment, the local economy. Like like every box ticked mm. if I just learn that that needs two or three hours in a slow cooker with i, I totally agree with you i think the, the the thing there though is what you're talking about is 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 having the food knowledge and the education and, and knowing yeah. that but you so know today that's it, that's so easy to come across right like mm. you know you can listen to things like this there are there are no count no doubt there are countless other like fresh food podcasts mm. and, and 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 healthy eating podcasts and you know what like even even when I, like I'm only 30, 34 years old, right? But when I w- uh, moved out of my parents' house at 17 and needed to learn how to cook, like you still kind of had to buy a cookbook. Mm. Like now you just you just set your iPad up on the, on the corner and watch Gordon Ramsay do it on YouTube. It's, YouTube, YouTube. Yeah, it's <laughs> so easy to learn how to yeah. cook these days. Like it's easier than it's ever been before. Mm. Um, you know, and, and, and there's there's no shortage of, uh, of recipes. There's even, uh, I, I even know of a number of different kind of bodybuilders that mm. do like bulking on a budget yeah. kind of things and, 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 and how to feed yourself like 4,000 calories a day on mm. 40 pound a week and, you know, things like that. So I, I, I definitely, that's one ask that I would have of everybody listening to this is mm. to just invest in your nutrition a little bit and that doesn't mm. have to be monetarily. It might be a little bit of time, a little yeah. bit of reading, a little bit of effort to learn how to cook, you know, a handful of dishes to to learn which 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 meats or, or which cuts of different meats are, are the best. Like you know, experiment with mutton instead of having lamb all the time. You know, experiment with making stews and broths and 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 uh, you know braised uh, uh, meats and things like this. Um, hell, dare I even say it? Experiment with offal. Like mm. it's incredibly. The lamb's heart costs like seventy pence, mm. and it's two hundred grams of the most mitochondria packed, nutrient dense yeah. protein animal protein that you can possibly get beef hearts are also incredible yeah yeah um you know we, we've done a few dishes when we've uh, you know been experimenting uh, our, uh, doing our own butchery uh, when we've been using school of arts on food um and we've you know we've done things with stuffed heart and and, and they're amazing the flavor is amazing but that comes down to a lot of uh, you know people's perception because you'll say something if we give something somebody something to taste and we don't tell them what it is Great. Now you're tasting it with, you know, a totally open mind. Yeah. The problem is, if you tell them what it is, and it's something like heart. Completely. Most of the time, perception is already, mm. I'm not going to like it, mm. or don't want to eat that. So you've already psychologically you've made a decision on what you're going to taste even before you've tasted it. Yeah. The other thing I would say about that as well is that if you look at statistically, what percentage of people's wages we spend today on mm. food versus what we spent 50, 60 years ago on food. The, the percentage I, I'm not gonna I'm not gonna say any percentages because I can't remember what they are and I'm not a big fan of just bullshitting it and making it up but it's it, it's something like half the percentage that we used to spend on food is now going on food and that's fantastic don't get me wrong that's a real clear sign of like progress we're doing a much better job of feeding the world like no no small task to feed you know nine million mm-hmm. people or whatever it is 
uh, that we're up to um, at, at the moment. So that's that's a fantastic thing. But then it's also, um, you know, maybe uh, cause for us to have a little bit of a pause and say, well, well, is it actually that expensive, mm. or are we just accustomed to to that not making up a significant, you know, part of our part of our spend? Mm. And maybe we should reframe that just a little bit because, like I say, the the knock on impact that it has, even. Um, you know, something that people talk to me about. I don't know if you if you came across this uh, a few months ago. There was a big study released. Um, I think it was by World Health Organization, and and, and the the press kind of ran with it and turned it into and I quote, worst name ever, but the planetary health diet. Did you come across this? <laughs> no. Okay. So it was essentially. I'm going to go and Google it though. This yeah, sounds interesting. Yeah. It was essentially a huge review hmm. done by multiple different research teams in multiple different countries hmm. to look at okay how do you feed 10 billion people when the population gets there like you know um climate change one of the huge driving forces behind climate change is is agriculture and the way that we produce food uh and this report was looking at like okay what should what should we really be eating if we're actually looking at not destroying the 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 planet Mm. um and 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 a lot of people one of the one of the other uh, factors into going into choosing what you eat is not necessarily just the nutrition or just the taste, but it's the overarching ethical obligation we have to do things in a, in a sustainable way, right? Mm. Like, you, you know, this this planet is our habitat. We're the only creature on the on the planet that likes to destroy its own habitat. Like, it, it's it's asinine that we do that. Yep. So surely we should be <laughs> focusing on putting our resources i.e. money our our spending pounds mm. our 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 food purchasing choices into things that are that are actually sustainable and just like you said about um the the farm that you buy from has no interest mm. in um producing a, a, a poor um animal because they're the ones that have to sell it mm. well equally they've got no interest in ravaging the ground on which they rear those animals Absolutely. that farm has probably been farming for hundreds of years mm. if you go back like maybe it's changed hands but this land we're, we're very fortunate in the uk that we've got a humid moist all year round environment that is brilliant for producing food mm. and those farms that are consistently producing livestock and, and and things like that are doing it in a sustainable way because they're still here hundreds mm. of years hundreds of years later um and heaven forbid we end up with you know some of the some of the huge agricultural practices that they have in like the states with mm. three thousand cattle herds in, yeah. in in essentially factory reared. We've already done that with chicken. Mm. Chicken's probably the single hardest thing to buy good quality chicken in the UK. Yeah. Um, we really want to make sure that we do not do that with with any anything else. Mm. And a part a lot of that comes down to like you said, where are people choosing to spend their money? And if it means that all of us have to eat a little bit less meat because the capacity of us to produce it mm. in an environmentally friendly, sustainable manner that also happens to be amazing for us nutritionally. Like, I'd eat less but higher quality meat mm. in order to sustain that. And I don't like putting my, my weekly spend on food behind um, behind uh, uh, processes mm. and farms um, and, and even politics that are you know totally unsustainable like you know why anybody would think that it's okay to buy meat that's that, that the amazon has been sacrificed in mm. order to produce that when you could spend maybe four or five pounds a kilo for the same cut more yeah. and, and and get something of phenomenal quality that's been reared 10 miles away yeah you know it, it, it's kind of insane and i think that people's consciousness needs to be raised yeah. to the fact that you are supporting these things when yeah. you buy 
you know, factory reared chicken or beef or, 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 or pork or whatever. Well, you bring up a good point, actually. That's the, the, the kind of, not just from a, a quality of food and the nutritional benefits, which are pretty obvious to most of those, um, but that's the climate impact on, on most uh, you know, most food things uh, or most food production. And it's, you know, things like food miles. Yeah. Um, you know, there's the, not only the benefit probably on quality, um, you know, but you've also got... If you're buying something from the same county that you're in, around the corner, mm. I mean, I'm quite lucky, you know, Harkers is not far from where I live anyway, um, so I get a lot of stuff from there personally as well as for the business, um, and it's, the farm is there, uh, and the butcher is there, um, you know, so you're talking about food miles and, and mm. actual, you know, impact on, on the climate as well, Yeah, and I think that's, you know, something that we, we have to take quite seriously, mm. um, we try to as a business where possible, um and you know sourcing locally if the quality is there then why anybody wouldn't do it i, I don't know i, th- I think seasonality and, mm. and embracing that like i i totally hold my hands up like my, myself included on this um but very very few people could tell you what is in season in the uk when mm. Like you know, apart from or apples in the fall, yeah, you know, late summer for berries, you know, because they grow on the on the back fence of my of my house. Yeah. But outside of that, you know, most people can't tell you which vegetables and which fruits are in season at which point in the year. Maybe just embracing the fact that you know strawberries are kind of a two month thing in yeah. the UK, and if, if you're eating, yeah, if yeah. You, if if you're really eating, if you're eating strawberries from Israel in December. Like really, the, there's there's a lot of negative associated with that choice. Mm. Nutritionally, it's nowhere near as good as something that you know has been picked from the plant two days ago, At the right yesterday, time or whatever, yeah. or, or right there. Um, you know, obviously, in order to produce that uh, and and to keep it fresh and to transport it, there's just so many things go into that. Yeah, the food but, miles is insane. But for know? most people, it's probably quite a mindless choice, right? Yeah. For most people, it's just like, well, I like strawberries. Just want to eat strawberries, so I'm gonna I'm yeah. gonna eat those. Like. First of all, people should know they're one of the most heavily sprayed crops with pesticides mm-hmm. um, that, that you can get. And like I say, you know, if you're, if you're eating those um, out of season that have been imported from, from somewhere, you know, a few thousand miles away, like it's, it, it's that type of thing that I think people maybe should raise their consciousness to mm. uh, and start to realise that actually, kind of locally sourced, mm. kind of in season, kind of properly produced, is yeah. probably, and I personally would say, that as the foundation for a healthy diet, mm. I'd choose that over how many grams of carbs versus fats you're eating yeah. any day of the week. Mm. Like if you look at the nutritional science, you know, um, you, uh, whether or not it fits your macros versus mm. whether or not it fits those criteria, you could probably look at, let's say, for example, um, the Okinawans, mm. right? People look at the Okinawans and there is even such a thing as the Okinawan diet. It's a blue zone. Most most people live to over 100 mm. um, per 1,000 capita, more, more people than anywhere else in the world. It's like the, 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 the world champions of longevity. Mm. And so obviously people are interested in what these guys are eating. Mm. Um, and people look at it and they say, well, what ratio of protein to what ratio of fat to how much meat to how many vegetables? Mm. And some people are even missing the fact that, well, the overwhelming majority of their food is produced on Okinawa. Yeah. The overwhelming majority of their food is eaten locally and seasonally and it hasn't got very many food miles and the production methods, like the fish is still fished in the local fisheries, yeah. like on that island and around that island. Mm-hmm. You know, the the whatever meat they, they eat is produced on that island. Whatever veg they have, almost everyone has their own vegetable patch yeah. in, in the back garden. And I think a focus on things like that 
it's not only down to like the taste is better yeah. right from from just a, a fine food perspective mm. the quality is better from a principled perspective yeah and and the food is better for you from a nutritional perspective yeah. like the, there is a night and day difference between a strawberry that has been transported from israel in december and a strawberry that has been picked from Sudal in in august like yeah. it's it's night and day. It couldn't be more different. It's huge difference, yeah. And and flavor wise, you know, not just nutritional. Yeah, they they are, you know, very very different products. But I think again, you just mentioned something quite interesting there about people just trying to grow something themselves. Anyone that's got a little bit of garden, yeah, you know, you can. I grow quite a lot myself. Um, and there's something. It's not greatly hard work. I think there's a a lot of a misconception of you know I haven't got time to run a allotment as well as you know a full-time job um you know it doesn't have to be that extreme but just growing something in 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 your garden if you have a little bit of space especially if you've got children um you know uh, because there's a process of them learning Mm. um and you know like we started this conversation about you know mainland europe's culture of knowing about food from a very young age and it not it not necessarily being education it's just part of the day-to-day life, which is obviously as a kid, you know, teaches you a lot. But, um, you know, it doesn't have to be... I speak to uh, my my partner's a, a teacher uh, and she's at a school where they do do a certain amount of what we class as kind of home economics and cooking. I didn't get any of that when I was at school. No. We didn't know cooking at school. No. Never. Zero. I don't remember a single one. No nutritional um, education, no food education. Nothing at all. So if... You know, if we're not getting it in the kind of the syllabuses from a educational point of view, I think we have to take responsibility for that. We've got to put that into to ourselves, um, and I think you know having a little bit of growing a few things yourself. Um, there's also the benefit of, okay, your garden isn't going to be organically certified by you know the soil association, but how much pesticides are you spraying on your own garden? How natural Round is up, the process? Nuclear. You know, I think it's it, you know it. The chances are that you growing something in your back garden is pretty, God, I'm going to use the word natural now, uh, but is pretty, you know, as, as nature would intend it. Yeah. Um, you're going to, you know, prepare a little bit of soil, you're going to dig a hole and you're going to plant something in it yeah. and then it's going to grow. You're going yeah. to put some water on it. And no one can produce <laughs> it as cheaply as you can in your back garden. Absolutely. There's, a, yeah. there's an interesting Facebook it's group. surprisingly called... easy. And it's really, for me personally, I love eating something that I've grown. Yeah. There's, a, there's a personal feeling of... Uh, of enjoyment and achievement of going okay how much of this meal can i dig up in the garden 10 minutes before i want to eat it yeah um you know and it, it really doesn't take a great deal of time and it's yeah. as you just said cheapness there's um it's there's, very cheap there's an interesting facebook group that i think it would be if anyone was interested in doing that might be a good source of people uh, i think it's something along the lines of grow food not lawns mm. um and they kind of advocate turning the back of your back of your house into a, a your own little food farm and in actual fact if if most people did that with even a percentage of their back garden yeah they could probably grow more veg than they could actually eat yeah. you know for, for, for the majority of people um interestingly there was a you you remind me of a study when you mentioned about kids and getting them involved in food you remind me of a study um i think it was an american study and they asked the kids bear in mind for most teenagers in america the most commonly eaten vegetable is tomato ketchup Mm-hmm. and the second is fries like that they are genuine statistics it's, yeah. that's just scary i don't think we're as bad as that in the uk i'd like to think we weren't mm. but most we're kids probably you ask, not far off sadly you, but. you ask most kids in their in, in their late single digits age you know like eight nine maybe maybe bordering into ten um how many vegetables can you name that you like to eat 
and the average is two, which mm. is which is just a travesty from a health perspective and from yeah. a nutritional perspective and from a food perspective. But you have have them spend uh, I can't remember how long it was in the study. It was a really short period of time. Like maybe it, it might be measured in, in just a few days. Mm. Like working in an allotment planting vegetables harvesting vegetables like taking them off mm. like learning about them having a tactile relationship yeah you look at it at the end of that week or, or whatever mm. the period was the average went up to 13 mm. um and this is something i've actually you you've guilted me into action now nick because it's, <laughs> I've, I've been meaning okay. to start some veg trays and, and, yeah, and yeah. stuff in my back garden for for, for a few years now mm. and i've been using the excuse that I, my kids are keeping me too busy to to get started Kids um, seem to love it too because they watch the things grow. Things like I think radishes. My two year old now will love it. Yeah. Things like radishes are great for this because they eight weeks you've got a radish to eat. Mm. Plant a radish seed, eight weeks if you've got a greenhouse or you've yeah. got a night in the summertime when you're planting stuff outside. You can physically, you know, kids want, you know, their attention spans are, you know, you know, not great. Yeah, they, uh, they need so, gratification. But they can see it, they can see it, they can see it. Wow, now we can eat it. Wow, this is, you know, there's a. The process you just said—that's tactile. There's a there's a physical thing going on here, um, you know that they can plant it, they can watch it grow and water it, nurture it to a stage where they dig it up, they then eat it, um, and I think this amazing thing. This is we're talking. Uh, I've not got kids with. If my missus has anything to do with it, we will have soon. Um, but you know the the children that she teaches of them not understanding that you can pick a radish out of the ground and eat it. Yeah. Yeah, they 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 are this this concept is just blows them away. We, we have a, a raspberry bush that yeah. is it grows on the other side. Of, so my, I'm looking my house backs onto a, a national a country park, yeah. and there's a raspberry but a blackberry bush that grows right on the other side. You're so obviously from a country it just park. comes straight over. Okay. Well, it's on my yeah. So this raspberry bush that um, grows over into my garden. I yeah, only pick right. the ones that are actually physically <laughs> in the garden. Go in the national in the country park. Guilting me, um, scrumping. That's cool. In, yeah, so in the in, in the summertime when they're when they're growing, mm. if we're like out in the back garden, I'll just pick them off the bush and eat them. Yeah, and my wife loses it at me, and so I'm going incredible. to poison myself. Like God. she she literally thinks that uh, that that there is something. Mm. It, funnily enough, it's it's weird. We use that word natural, but she thinks there's something unnatural about that. It's like well, I'm just I'm just picking. No, it's a blackberry. Like it, it doesn't get any more wrong. fresh than what you. Yeah, just do you know what yeah. I mean. And and uh, and it's like that's uh, you know the the way that that, that we should mm. should really live. And I mean, it's interesting actually. Hopefully, in a few weeks' time, I'm going to be interviewing somebody who actually has a permaculture farm. Wow. Um. So they 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 basically just let nature do its thing, and they kind of prune it, and they, you know, and that'll be really interesting to see, you know, what kind of, what kind of experience they've had, yeah. um, with with that. Um, I walk around my yeah. garden eating all the time. Yeah, I'm growing spinach. I've got lettuce, got green stuff growing as well. And again, it, it sounds like oh god, you've got loads of time. I don't spend a great deal of time in there mm. at all. Mm. You know the things that I get well, ready right now. I've got leeks coming now, and I've got pumpkins nearly ready for Halloween. Um, so you're growing tons of stuff in the garden, and they don't. I mean, pumpkins and squash is a great example. You plant that, and you leave it. Mm. The the amount of physical man hours I've put into that pumpkin. Or the pumpkins is a, pff, ten minutes. Yeah. <laughs> that's yeah. it. And 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 that's the, yeah. You are hammering home the guilt of me using no time as a, an excuse for not having done this. Um, I think I will. I think I'll start to. Uh, I'll, I'll I'll start to, start to land it's, that project. It's good, and I think it. You know, it, it ticks that box of what we were saying right at the start, which is that culture of, mm. getting people to understand, 
well, where food comes from, yeah. how it grows, because I think that's one of the biggest things that we, we miss a lot in this country through lack of education in the, you know, the education system. Um, and we don't have that kind of culture of it, uh, really. Uh, and I think it's, it, it's actually quite simple and can be very, very beneficial. And as we're talking about food and nutrition, well, the end product is you get something that's actually edible and is probably very nutritious because you've grown it in a totally natural way. Yeah, yeah. Um, so, you know, it ticks, it ticks a lot of boxes. Um, yeah, I, I love digging stuff up in the garden uh, and having stuff on our plate, on our table, that we've grown. Yeah. Because it really doesn't take a great deal. It's, yeah. it's certainly cheaper. Mm. Uh, you know, because nature does really all the work for you. Um, and you get great stuff. Yeah. Fantastic. Well, we are going to have to wrap up because uh, everyone is going to be coming in for the coaching block soon. But thank you so much for, for taking the time to come and, uh, and talk to me. Um, it, so uh, just to remind people, this is Nick from, uh, from Delilah. It's an absolute epicenter for fine foods and uh, Christmas is approaching uh, as we record this. It's a great place to go and shop for a Christmas present for people as well. I couldn't recommend it uh, highly enough. Um, is there any uh, any closing comments that you would like to say or any any kind of you know uh, places that you'd like to signpost people to? No, definitely. I mean, other than if anybody's got any questions or, as I've said, I think we said in our fir- first part, if you've got questions about food or there's a hole in your knowledge, go and ask someone. Yeah. Um, you know, and I, I like to think I'm a fairly approachable guy and I love talking about food, this is probably obvious. Um, I love people coming in and asking questions. If you're not sure about something, and even if I don't know, I don't know the answer, I'll find it out because I'm interested. So you want to know where something's from, you don't want to know what to eat, seasonality, uh, wherever. You want to know about really good meat, go and speak to a local butcher. You want to know about really good vegetables and what seasonality is, speak to people like Fruit Basket. You know, mm. just go and speak because they're there. Yeah. And, they, and I guarantee you, they will love the questions and they will love spending time talking to you. Yeah. So if you're not sure or you think, well, okay, that's okay for you guys, you know, you've got all that information about food, just come into Delilah, ask for me. I'm uh, happy to answer uh, any questions or talk to people about yeah. food. I think it's important. Yeah, Nick's always happy to get out of work by having an hour-long conversation about food. Hell yeah. Yeah, no problem <laughs> with that whatsoever. <laughs> all right, thank you, mate. I appreciate it. Cheers. Thanks.